What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Book First, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. Read by Mark Douglas Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Preface A few years ago, while visiting, or rather rummaging about Notre Dame, the author of this book found, in an obscure nook of one of the towers, the following word, engraved by hand upon the wall. Anark. These Greek capitals, black with age, and quite deeply graven in the stone, with I know not what signs peculiar to Gothic calligraphy, imprinted upon their forms and upon their attitudes, as though with the purpose of revealing that it had been a hand of the Middle Ages which had inscribed them there, and especially the fatal and melancholy meaning contained in them struck the author deeply. He questioned himself. He sought to divine who could have been that soul in torment which had not been willing to quit this world without leaving this stigma of crime or unhappiness upon the brow of the ancient church. Afterwards the wall was whitewashed or scraped down, I know not which, and the inscription disappeared. For it is thus that people have been in the habit of proceeding with the marvellous churches of the Middle Ages for the last two hundred years. Mutilations come to them from every quarter, from within as well as from without. The priest whitewashes them, the archdeacon scrapes them down, then the populace arrives and demolishes them. Thus, with the exception of the fragile memory which the author of this book here consecrates to it, there remains to-day nothing whatever of the mysterious word engraved within the gloomy tower of Notre Dame nothing of the destiny which it so sadly summed up. The man who wrote that word upon the wall disappeared from the midst of the generations of man many centuries ago. The word, in its turn, has been effaced from the wall of the church. The church will, perhaps, itself soon disappear from the face of the earth. It is upon this word that this book is founded. March 1831 Book First, Chapter One, The Grand Hall. Three hundred and forty-eight years, six months, and nineteen days ago today, the Parisians awoke to the sound of all the bells in the triple circuit of the city, the university, and the town ringing a full peal. The sixth of January, fourteen eighty-two, is not, however, a day of which history has preserved the memory. There was nothing notable in the event which thus set the bells and the bourgeois of Paris in a ferment from early morning. It was neither an assault by the Picards nor the Burgundians, nor a hunt led along in procession, nor a revolt of scholars in the town of Laz, nor an entry of our much-dread lord Monsieur the King, nor even a pretty hanging of male and female thieves in the courts of Paris. Neither was it the arrival, so frequent in the fifteenth century, of some plumed and bedizened embassy. 
it was barely two days since the last cavalcade of that nature, that of the Flemish ambassadors charged with concluding the marriage between the Dauphin and Marguerite of Flanders, had made its entry into Paris, to the great annoyance of Monsieur le Cardinal le Bourbon, who, for the sake of pleasing the King, had been obliged to assume an amiable mien towards this whole rustic rabble of Flemish burgomasters, and to regale them at his Hôtel de Bourbon with a very pretty morality, allegorical satire, and farce, while a driving rain drenched the magnificent tapestries at his door. What put the whole population of Paris in commotion, as Jehan de Troyes expresses it, on the 6th of January, was the double solemnity, united from time immemorial, of the Epiphany and the Feast of Fools. On that day there was to be a bonfire at the Place de Greve, a maypole at the Chapelle de Brac, and a mystery at the Palais de Justice. It had been cried, to the sound of the trumpet, the preceding evening at all the crossroads by the provost's men, clad in handsome, short, sleeveless coats of violet camelot, with large white crosses upon their breasts. So the crowd of citizens, male and female, having closed their houses and shops, thronged from every direction at early morn towards some one of the three spots designated. Each had made his choice, one the bonfire, another the maypole, another the mystery play. It must be stated, in honour of the good sense of the loungers of Paris, that the greater part of this crowd directed their steps towards the bonfire, which was quite in season, or towards the mystery play, which was to be presented in the grand hall of the Palais de Justice, the courts of law, which was well roofed and walled, and that the curious left the poor, scantily flowered maypole to shiver all alone beneath the sky of January in the cemetery of the Chapel of Brac. The populace thronged the avenues of the law courts in particular, because they knew that the Flemish ambassadors, who had arrived two days previously, intended to be present at the representation of the mystery, and at the election of the Pope of Fools, which was also to take place in the Grand Hall. It was no easy matter on that day to force one's way into that Grand Hall, although it was then reputed to be the largest covered enclosure in the world. It is true that Sauval had not yet measured the grand hall of the Chateau of Montargis. The palace place, encumbered with people, offered to the curious gazers at the windows the aspect of a sea, into which five or six streets, like so many mouths of rivers, discharged every moment fresh floods of heads. The waves of this crowd, augmented incessantly, dashed against the angles of the houses which projected here and there, like so many promontories, into the irregular basin of the place. In the centre of the lofty Gothic façade of the palace, the grand staircase, incessantly ascended and descended by a double current, which, after parting on the intermediate landing-place, flowed in broad waves along its lateral slopes, the grand staircase, I say, trickled incessantly into the place, like a cascade into a lake. The cries, the laughter, the trampling of those thousands of feet produced a great noise and a great clamour. From time to time this noise and clamour redoubled. The current, which drove the crowd towards the grand staircase, flowed backwards, became troubled, formed whirlpools. 
this was produced by the buffet of an archer, or the horse of one of the provost's sergeants, which kicked to restore order. An admirable tradition which the provostship has bequeathed to the constabulary, the constabulary to the marechaussee, the marechaussee to our gendarmerie of Paris. Thousands of good, calm bourgeois faces thronged the windows, the doors, the dormer windows, the roofs, gazing at the palace, gazing at the populace, and asking nothing more. For many Parisians content themselves with the spectacle of the spectators, and a wall behind which something is going on becomes at once, for us, a very curious thing indeed. If it could be granted to us, the men of 1830, to mingle in thought with those Parisians of the fifteenth century, and to enter with them, jostled, elbowed, pulled about, into that immense hall of the palace, which was so cramped on that sixth of January, 1482, the spectacle would not be devoid of either interest or charm, and we should have about us only things that were so old that they would seem new. With the reader's consent, we will endeavor to retrace in thought the impression which he would have experienced in company with us on crossing the threshold of that grand hall, in the midst of that tumultuous crowd in surcoats, short sleeveless jackets, and doublets. And first of all there is a buzzing in the ears, a dazzlement in the eyes. Above our heads is a double ogive vault, panelled with wood-carving, painted azure, and sewn with golden fleur-de-lis. Beneath our feet a pavement of black and white marble, alternating. A few paces distant an enormous pillar, then another, then another, seven pillars in all, down the length of the hall, sustaining the spring of the arches of the double vault, in the centre of its width. Around four of the pillars, stalls of merchants, all sparkling with glass and tinsel. Around the last three, benches of oak, worn and polished by the trunk-hose of the litigants, and the robes of the attorneys. Around the hall, along the lofty wall, between the doors, between the windows, between the pillars, the interminable row of all the kings of France, from Pharamond down, the lazy kings with pedant arms and downcast eyes, the valiant and combative kings, with heads and arms raised boldly heavenward. Then, in the long pointed windows, glass of a thousand hues. At the wide entrances to the hall, rich doors, finely sculptured. And all, the vaults, pillars, walls, jams, panelling doors, statues, covered from top to bottom with a splendid blue and gold illumination, which, a trifle tarnished at the epoch when we behold it, had almost entirely disappeared beneath dust and spiders in the year of grace 1549, when de Brule still admired it from tradition. Let the reader picture to himself now this immense oblong hall, illuminated by the pallid light of a January day, invaded by a motley and noisy throng which drifts along the walls, and eddies round the seven pillars, and he will have a confused idea of the whole effect of the picture, whose curious details we shall make an effort to indicate with more precision. It is certain that if Ravaillac had not assassinated Henri IV, there would have been no documents in the trial of Ravaillac 
deposited in the clerk's office of the Palais de Justice. No accomplices interested in causing the said documents to disappear. Hence no incendiaries obliged, for the lack of better means, to burn the clerk's office in order to burn the documents, and to burn the Palais de Justice in order to burn the clerk's office. Consequently, in short, no conflagration in 1618. The old palais would be standing still, with its ancient grand hall. I should be able to say to the reader, go and look at it, and we should thus both escape the necessity, I of making, and he of reading, a description of it, such as it is. Which demonstrates a new truth, that great events have incalculable results. It is true that it may be quite possible in the first place that Ravaillac had no accomplices, and in the second, that if he had any, they were in no way connected with the fire of 1618. Two other very plausible explanations exist. First, the great flaming star, a foot broad and a cubit high, which fell from heaven, as everyone knows, upon the law courts, after midnight on the 7th of March. Second, Théophile's quatrain, Sure twas but a sorry game, when at Paris Dame Justice, through having eaten too much spice, set the palace all aflame. Whatever may be thought of this triple explanation, political, physical, and poetical, of the burning of the law courts in 1618, the unfortunate fact of the fire is certain. Very little to-day remains, thanks to this catastrophe thanks, above all, to the successive restorations which have completed what it spared, very little remains of that first dwelling of the kings of France, of that elder palace of the Louvre, already so old in the time of Philip the Handsome, that they sought there for the traces of the magnificent buildings erected by King Robert and described by Helgaldus. Nearly everything has disappeared. What has become of the chamber of the chancellery, where Saint-Louis consummated his marriage, the garden where he administered justice, clad in a coat of Camelot, a surcoat of linsey-woolsey without sleeves, and a surmantle of black sandal, as he lay upon the carpet with Jean V. Where is the chamber of the Emperor Sigismond, and that of Charles IV, that of Jean the Landless? Where is the staircase, from which Charles VI promulgated his edict of pardon? the slab where Marcel cut the throats of Robert de Clermont and the Marshal of Champagne in the presence of the Dauphin, the wicket where the bulls of Pope Benedict were torn, and whence those who had brought them departed decked out in derision in copes and mitres, and making an apology through all Paris, and the grand hall with its gilding, its azure, its statues, its pointed arches, its pillars, its immense vaults, all fretted with carvings, and the gilded chamber, and the stone lion which stood at the door, with lowered head and tail between his legs, like the lions on the throne of Solomon, in the humiliated attitude which befits force in the presence of justice, and the beautiful doors, and the stained glass, and the chaste ironwork which drove Biscornet to despair, and the delicate woodwork of Ancy. What has time, what have men done with these marvels? What have they given us in return for all this Gallic history, 
for all this Gothic art. The heavy, flattened arches of Monsieur de Brosset, that awkward architect of the Saint-Gervais portal. So much for art. And, as for history, we have the gossiping reminiscences of the great pillar, still ringing with the tattle of the patru. It is not much. Let us return to the veritable grand hall of the veritable old palace. The two extremities of this gigantic parallelogram were occupied, the one by the famous marble table, so long, so broad, and so thick, that, as the ancient land rolls, in a style that would have given Gargantua an appetite, say, such a slice of marble as was never beheld in the world the other by the chapel where Louis XI had himself sculptured on his knees before the Virgin, and whither he caused to be brought, without heeding the two gaps thus made in the row of royal statues, the statues of Charlemagne and of Saint-Louis, two saints whom he supposed to be great in favour in heaven, as kings of France. This chapel, quite new, having been built only six years, was entirely in that charming taste of delicate architecture, of marvellous sculpture, of fine and deep chasing, which marks with us the end of the Gothic era, and which is perpetuated to about the middle of the sixteenth century in the fairy-like fancies of the Renaissance. The little open-work rose window, pierced above the portal, was, in particular, a masterpiece of lightness and grace one would have pronounced it a star of lace. In the middle of the hall, opposite the great door, a platform of gold brocade placed against the wall, a special entrance to which had been effected through a window in the corridor of the gold chamber, had been erected for the Flemish emissaries and the other great personages invited to the presentation of the mystery play. It was upon the marble table that the mystery was to be enacted, as usual. It had been arranged for the purpose, early in the morning, its rich slabs of marble, all scratched by the heels of law-clerks, supported a cage of carpenter's work of considerable height, the upper surface of which, within view of the whole hall, was to serve as the theatre, and whose interior, masked by tapestries, was to take the place of dressing-rooms for the personages of the piece. A ladder, naively placed on the outside, was to serve as means of communication between the dressing-room and the stage, and lend its rude rungs to entrances as well as to exits. There was no personage, however unexpected, no sudden change, no theatrical effect, which was not obliged to mount that ladder. Innocent and venerable infancy of art and contrivances. Four of the bailiff of the palace's sergeants, perfunctory guardians of all the pleasures of the people, on days of festival as well as on days of execution, stood at the four corners of the marble table. The piece was only to begin with the twelfth stroke of the great palace clock sounding midday. It was very late, no doubt, for a theatrical representation, but they had been obliged to fix the hour to suit the convenience of the ambassadors. Now this whole multitude had been waiting since morning. A goodly number of curious, good people had been shivering since daybreak before the grand staircase of the palace. Some even affirmed that they had passed the night across the threshold of the great door, 
in order to make sure that they should be the first to pass in. The crowd grew more dense every moment, and, like water, which rises above its normal level, began to mount along the walls, to swell around the pillars, to spread out on the entablatures, on the cornices, on the window-sills, on all the salient points of the architecture, on all the reliefs of the sculpture. Hence discomfort, impatience, weariness, the liberty of a day of cynicism and folly, the quarrels which break forth for all sorts of causes—a pointed elbow, an iron-shod shoe, the fatigue of long waiting—had already, long before the hour appointed for the arrival of the ambassadors, imparted a harsh and bitter accent to the clamour of these people who were shut in, fitted into each other, pressed, trampled upon, stifled. Nothing was to be heard but imprecations on the Flemish, the provost of the merchants, the cardinal de Bourbon, the bailiff of the courts, Madame Marguerite of Austria, the sergeants with their rods, the cold, the heat, the bad weather, the bishop of Paris, the pope of the fools, the pillars, the statues, that closed door, that open window, all to the vast amusement of a band of scholars and lackeys scattered through the mass, who mingled with all this discontent their teasing remarks, and their malicious suggestions and pricked the general bad temper with a pin, so to speak. Among the rest there was a group of these merry imps, who, after smashing the glass in a window, had seated themselves heartily on the entablature, and from that point dispatched their gaze and their railleries both within and without upon the throng in the hall, and the throng upon the place. It was easy to see, from their parody gestures, their ringing laughter, the bantering appeals which they exchanged with their comrades, from one end of the hall to the other, that these young clerks did not share the weariness and fatigue of the rest of the spectators, and that they understood very well the art of extracting, for their own private diversion, from that which they had under their eyes, a spectacle which made them await the other with patience. "'Upon my soul, so it's you, Joannes Frollo de Molendino!' cried one of them to a sort of little light-haired imp, with a well-favoured and malign countenance, clinging to the acanthus leaves of a capital. "'You are well-named John of the Mill, for your two arms and your two legs have the air of four wings fluttering on the breeze. How long have you been here?' "'By the mercy of the devil!' retorted Joanne Frollo, these four hours and more, and I hope they will be reckoned to my credit in purgatory. I heard the eight singers of the King of Sicily intone the first verse of seven o'clock mass in the Saint-Chapelle. "'Fine singers,' replied the other, with voices even more pointed than their caps. Before founding a mass for Monsieur Saint-Jean, the king should have inquired whether Monsieur Saint-Jean likes Latin droned out in a Provençal accent. "'He did it for the sake of employing those accursed singers of the king of Sicily!' cried an old woman sharply from among the crowd beneath the window. "'I just put it to you, a thousand livres parisis for a mass, and out of the tax on sea-fish in the markets of Paris to boot!' "'Peace, old crone,' said a tall, grave person, stopping up his nose on the side towards the fishwife. "'A mass had to be founded. Would you wish the king to fall ill again?' 
"'Bravely spoken, Sieur Gilles Lecornu, master furrier of king's robes,' cried the little student, clinging to the capital. A shout of laughter from all the students greeted the unlucky name of the poor furrier of the king's robes. "'Lecornu! Gilles Lecornu!' said some. "'Cornutus et hersutus!' "'Horned and hairy!' another went on. "'He, of course!' continued the small imp on the capital. "'What are they laughing at? An honourable man is Gilles Lecornu, brother of Master Jehan Lecornu, provost of the king's house, son of Master Mahier Lecornu, first porter of the Bois de Vincennes, all bourgeois of Paris, all married from father to son.' The gaiety redoubled. The big furrier, without uttering a word in reply, tried to escape all the eyes riveted upon him from all sides. But he perspired and panted in vain. Like a wedge entering the wood, his efforts served only to bury still more deeply in the shoulders of his neighbors, his large, apoplectic face, purple with spite and rage. At length one of these, as fat, short, and venerable as himself, came to his rescue. "'Abomination! Scholars addressing a bourgeois in that fashion in my day would have been flogged with a faggot, which would have afterwards been used to burn them!' The whole band burst into laughter. "'Ola, eh! Who is scolding so? Who is that screech-owl of evil fortune?' "'Hold! I know him!' said one of them. "'Tis Master André "'Because—' He is one of the four sworn booksellers of the university," said the other. "'Everything goes by fours in that shop,' cried a third. "'The four nations, the four faculties, the four feasts, the four procurators, the four electors, the four booksellers.' "'Well,' began Jean Frollo once more, "'we must play the devil with them.' "'Mounier, we'll burn your books!' Meunier, we'll beat your lackeys. Meunier, we'll kiss your wife. That fine Mademoiselle Oudard, who is as fresh and as gay though she were a widow. Devil take you, growled Master André Meunier. Master André, pursued Jean Jehan, still clinging to his capital, hold your tongue, or I'll drop on your head. Master André raised his eyes, seemed to measure in an instant the height of the pillar, the weight of the scamp, mentally multiplied that weight by the square of the velocity, and remained silent. Jehan, master of the field of battle, pursued triumphantly. "'That's what I'll do, even if I am the brother of an archdeacon!' "'Fine gentry are our people of the university, not to have caused our privileges to be respected on such a day as this. However, there is a maypole and a bonfire in the town, a mystery, Pope of the Fools, and Flemish ambassadors in the city, and at the university, nothing. Nevertheless, the Place Maubert is sufficiently large, interposed one of the clerks established on the window sill. Down with the rector, the electors, and the procurators! cried Johannes. "'We must have a bonfire this evening in the Sham Gaillard,' went on the other, "'made of Master André's books.' "'And the desks of the scribes,' added his neighbour. 
and the beetles' wands, and the spittoons of the deans, and the cupboards of the procurators, and the hutches of the electors, and the stools of the rector. Down with them, put in little Jehan as counterpoint. Down with Master Andre, the beetles and the scribes, the theologians, the doctors, and the decretists, the procurators, the electors, and the rector. The end of the world has come, muttered Master Andre, stopping up his ears. By the way, there's the rector. See, he is passing through the place, cried one of those in the window. Each rivaled his neighbor in his haste to turn towards the place. Is it really our venerable rector, Master Thibault? demanded Jehan Frollo du Malin, who, as he was clinging to one of the inner pillars, could not see what was going on outside. "'Yes, yes,' replied all the others. "'It is really he, Master Thibault, the rector.' It was, in fact, the rector and all the dignitaries of the university who were marching in procession in front of the embassy, and at that moment traversing the place. The students crowded into the window, saluted them as they passed with sarcasms and ironical applause. The rector, who was walking at the head of his company, had to support the first broadside. It was severe. "'Good day, monsieur le recteur. Hola, eh? Good day there. How does he manage to be here, the old gambler? Has he abandoned his dice? How he trots along on his mule! Her ears are not so long as his. Hola, eh? Good day, Monsieur le recteur Thibault. Thibault Eliator, old fool, old gambler. God preserve you. Did you throw double six often last night? Oh, what a decrepit face, livid and haggard and drawn with the love of gambling and of dice. Where are you bound for in that fashion, Thibault? Thibault de Adados? with your back turned to the university and trotting towards the town? He is on his way, no doubt, to seek a lodging in the Rue Thibault-Audet, cried Jehan du Monsieur Molin. The entire band repeated this quip in a voice of thunder, clapping their hands furiously. You are going to seek a lodging in the Rue Thibault-Audet, are you not, Monsieur le recteur, gamester on the side of the devil? Then came the turns of the other dignitaries. "'Down with the beetles! Down with the mace-bearers!' "'Tell me, Robin Puispin, who is that yonder?' "'He is Gilbert de Sui, Gilbertus d'Ossoliaco, the Chancellor of the College of Autun. "'Hold on, here's my shoe. You are a better place than I. Fling it in his face!' "'Saturnalitius mitimus ecce nuces. Down with the six theologians, with their white surplices! Are those the theologians? I thought they were the white geese given by saint Genevieve to the city for the fief of Rogny. Down with the doctors! Down with the cardinal disputations and quibblers! My cap to you, Chancellor of saint Genevieve, you have done me a wrong. Tis true! He gave my place in the nation of Normandy to little Ascanio Falzapada, who comes from the province of Bourges, since he's an Italian. That is an injustice, said all the scholars. Down with the Chancellor of saint Genevieve. Oh, eh, Master Joachim de la Dours, 
Oe, Louis Daoui! Oe, Lambert Hotama! May the devil stifle the procurator of the German nation! And the chaplains of the Chasse-Chapelle, with their grey amices, come tuniques grises! See you do pelibus grises foratis! Olae, master of arts! All the beautiful black copes! All the fine red copes! They make a fine tale for the rector. One would say that he was a doge of Venice on his way to his bridal with the sea. Say, Jehan, here are the cannons of saint Genevieve. To the deuce with a whole set of cannons! Abbe Claude Chouart, Dr. Claude Chouart, are you in search of Marie Lagaffade? She is in the Rue de Glatigny. She is making the bed of the king of the debauchees. She is paying her four deniers, quatior deniaros. Out unum bombum. Would you like to have her pay you in the face? Comrades, Mr. Simon Saguin, the elector of Picardy, with his wife on the crupper. Post equitem seclet atra jura. Behind the horseman sits black care. Courage, Master Simon. Good day, Mr. Elector. Good night, Madame Electress. How happy they are to see all that, sighed Joan de Melendino, still perched in the foliage of his capital. Meanwhile, the sworn bookseller of the university, Master André Mounier, was inclining his ear to the furrier of the king's robes, Master Gilles Lacornu. I tell you, sir, that the end of the world has come. No one has ever beheld such outbreaks among the students. It is the accursed inventions of this century that are ruining everything—artilleries, bombards, and, above all, printing, that other German pest. No more manuscripts, no more books. Printing will kill book-selling. It is the end of the world that is drawing nigh. I see that plainly, from the progress of velvet stuffs," said the fur merchant. At this moment midday sounded. "'Ha!' exclaimed the entire crowd in one voice. The scholars held their peace. Then a great hurly-burly ensued, a vast movement of feet, hands, and heads, a general outbreak of coughs and handkerchiefs. Each one arranged himself, assuming his post, raised himself up, and grouped himself. Then came a great silence. All necks remained outstretched, all mouths remained open. All glances were directed towards the marble table. Nothing made its appearance there. The bailiff's four sergeants were still there, stiff, motionless, as painted statues. All eyes turned to the estrade reserved for the Flemish envoys. The door remained closed, the platform empty. This crowd had been waiting since daybreak for three things. Noonday, the embassy from Flanders, the mystery play. Noonday alone had arrived on time. On this occasion it was too much. They waited one, two, three, five minutes, a quarter of an hour. Nothing came. The dais remained empty, the theatre dumb. In the meantime wrath had succeeded to impatience. Irritated words circulated in a low tone, still it is true. "'The mystery! The mystery!' they murmured in hollow voices. Heads began to ferment. A tempest, which was only rumbling in the distance as yet, was floating on the surface of this crowd. 
It was Jehan du Melan who struck the first spark from it. "'The mystery! And to the devil with the Flemings!' he exclaimed at the full force of his lungs, twining like a serpent around his pillar. The crowd clapped their hands. "'The mystery!' it repeated. "'And may all the devils take Flanders!' "'We must have the mystery instantly,' resumed the student, "'or else my advice is that we should hang the bailiff of the courts, by way of a morality and a comedy.' "'Well said!' cried the people. "'And let us begin the hanging with his sergeants!' A grand acclamation followed. The four poor fellows began to turn pale and to exchange glances. The crowd hurled itself towards them, and they already beheld the frail wooden railing which separated them from it, giving way and bending before the pressure of the throng. It was a critical moment. "'To the sack! To the sack!' rose the cry on all sides. At that moment the tapestry of the dressing-room, which we have described above, was raised, and afforded passage to a personage, the mere sight of whom suddenly stopped the crowd and changed its wrath into curiosity as by enchantment. "'Silence! Silence!' The personage, but little reassured, and trembling in every limb, advanced to the edge of the marble table with a vast amount of bows, which, in proportion as he drew nearer, more and more resembled genuflections. In the meanwhile tranquillity had gradually been restored. All that remained was that slight murmur which always rises above the silence of a crowd. "'Messieurs the bourgeois,' said he, "'and mademoiselle the bourgeoisesse, we shall have the honour of declaiming and representing, before his eminence, monsieur the cardinal, a very beautiful morality which has for its title the good judgment of madame the Virgin Mary. I am to play Jupiter.' His Eminence is, at this moment, escorting the very honourable embassy of the Duke of Austria, which is detained at present, listening to the harangue of Monsieur the Rector of the University at the Gate Baudet. As soon as his illustrious Eminence, the Cardinal, arrives, we will begin. It is certain that nothing less than the intervention of Jupiter was required to save the four unfortunate sergeants of the bailiff of the courts. If we had the happiness of having invented this very voracious tale, and of being, in consequence, responsible for it before Our Lady criticism, it is not against us that the classic precept, nec deus intercit, could be invoked. Moreover, the costume of Signor Jupiter was very handsome, and contributed not a little towards calming the crowd, by attracting all its attention. Jupiter was clad in a coat of mail covered with black velvet, with gilt nails. And, had it not been for the rouge and the huge red beard, each of which covered one half of his face, had it not been for the roll of gilded cardboard, spangled and all bristling with strips of tinsel, which he held in his hand, and in which the eyes of the initiated easily recognized thunderbolts, had not his feet been flesh-coloured and banded with ribbons in Greek fashion, he might have borne comparison, so far as the severity of his mane was concerned, with a Breton archer from the guard of Monsieur de Berry. End of chapter 1
Book First, Chapter Two of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Pierre Gringoire. Nevertheless, as he harangued them, the satisfaction and admiration unanimously excited by his costume were dissipated by his words, and when he reached that untoward conclusion, "'As soon as his illustrious eminence, the cardinal, arrives, we will begin!' His voice was drowned in a thunder of hooting. "'Begin instantly! The mystery! The mystery immediately!' shrieked the people." and above all the voices that of Joan de Molendino was audible, piercing the uproar like the fife's derisive serenade. "'Commence instantly!' yelped the scholar. "'Down with Jupiter and the Cardinal de Bourbon!' vociferated Robin Puispin and the other clerks perched in the window. "'The morality this very instant!' repeated the crowd. "'This very instant!' the sack and the rope for the comedians and the cardinal!" Poor Jupiter, haggard, frightened, pale beneath his rouge, dropped his thunderbolt, took his cap in his hand. Then he bowed and trembled and stammered, "'His eminence, the ambassadors, Madame Marguerite of Flanders!' He did not know what to say. In truth, he was afraid of being hung. Hung by the populace for waiting hung by the cardinal for not having waited. He saw between the two dilemmas only an abyss, that is to say, a gallows. Luckily, someone came to rescue him from his embarrassment and assume the responsibility. An individual who was standing beyond the railing, in the free space around the marble table, and whom no one had yet caught sight of, since his long, thin body was completely sheltered from every visual ray by the diameter of the pillar against which he was leaning, this individual, we say, tall, gaunt, pallid, blond, still young, although already wrinkled about the brow and cheeks, with brilliant eyes and a smiling mouth, clad in garments of black serge, worn and shining with age, approached the marble table, and made a sign to the poor sufferer but the other was so confused that he did not see him. The newcomer advanced another step. "'Jupiter,' he said, "'my dear Jupiter!' The other did not hear. At last the tall blonde, driven out of patience, shrieked almost in his face. "'Michel Giborne!' "'Who calls me?' said Jupiter, as though awakened with a start. "'I,' replied the person clad in black. "'Ah!' said Jupiter. "'Begin at once,' went on the other. "'Satisfy the populace. I undertake to appease the bailiff, who will appease Monsieur the Cardinal.' Jupiter breathed once more. "'Messieurs de bourgeois,' he cried at the top of his lungs to the crowd which continued to hoot him, "'we are going to begin at once.' "'Evoe, Jupiter! Plaudite quives! All hail, Jupiter!' "'Applaud, citizens!' shouted the scholars. "'Noel! Noel! Good! Good!' shouted the people. The hand-clapping was deafening, and Jupiter had already withdrawn under his tapestry, while the hall still trembled with acclamations. In the meanwhile, the personage who had so magically turned the tempest into dead calm, 
as our old and dear Cornier puts it, had modestly retreated to the half-shadow of his pillar, and would, no doubt, have remained invisible there, motionless and mute as before, had he not been plucked by the sleeve by two young women, who, standing in the front row of the spectators, had noticed his colloquy with Michel Giborn, Jupiter. "'Master,' said one of them, making him a sign to approach. "'Hold your tongue, my dear Leonard,' said her neighbour, pretty, fresh, and very brave, in consequence of being dressed up in her best attire. "'He is not a clerk. He is a layman. You must not say master to him, but messire.' "'Messire,' said Leonard. The stranger approached the railing. "'What would you have of me, damsels?' he asked with alacrity. "'Oh, nothing,' replied Leonard, in great confusion. "'It is my neighbour, Gisquette Lagencienne, who wishes to speak with you.' "'Not so,' replied Gisquette, blushing. "'It was Leonard who called you master. I only told her to say messire.' The two young girls dropped their eyes. The man, who asked nothing better than to enter into conversation, looked at them with a smile. "'So you have nothing to say to me, damsels?' "'Oh, nothing at all,' replied Gisquette. "'Nothing,' said Leonard. The tall, light-haired young man retreated a step, but the two curious maidens had no mind to let slip their prize. "'Messire,' said Gisquette, with the impetuosity of an open sluice, or of a woman who has made up her mind. "'Do you know that soldier who is to play the part of Madame the Virgin in the mystery?' "'You mean the part of Jupiter?' replied the stranger. "'Eh, yes,' said Leonard. "'Isn't she stupid?' "'So you know Jupiter?' "'Michel Gibon replied the unknown. "'Yes, madame.' "'He has a fine beard,' said Leonard. "'Will what they are about to say here be fine?' inquired Gisquette timidly. "'Very fine, mademoiselle,' replied the unknown, without the slightest hesitation. "'What is it to be?' said Leonard. "'The good judgment of Madame the Virgin. A morality, if you please, damsel.' "'Ah, that makes the difference,' responded Leonard. A brief silence ensued, broken by the stranger. It is a perfectly new morality, and one which has never yet been played. Then it is not the same one, said Gisquette, that was given two years ago, on the day of the entrance of Monsieur the Legate, and where three handsome maids played the parts. Of sirens, said Leonard. And all naked, added the young man. Leonard lowered her eyes modestly. Gisquette glanced at her and did the same. He continued with a smile. It was a very pleasant thing to see. Today it is a morality made expressly for Madame the Demoiselle of Flanders. Will they sing shepherd songs? inquired Gisquette. Fie! said the stranger. In a morality you must not confound styles. If it were a farce, well and good. That is a pity resumed Gisquette. That day, at the Ponceau Fountain, there were wild men and women who fought and assumed many aspects, as they sang little motets and bergerettes. "'That which is suitable for a legate,' 
returned the stranger, with a good deal of dryness, is not suitable for a princess. And beside them, resumed Leonard, played many brass instruments, making great melodies. And, for the refreshment of the passers-by, continued Gisquette, the fountain spouted through three mouths wine, milk, and hippocras, of which every one drank who wished. And, a little below the ponceau at the Trinity, pursued Leonard, there was a passion performed, and without any speaking. "'How well I remember that!' exclaimed Gisquette. "'God on the cross, and the two thieves on the right and left!' Here the young gossips, growing warm at the memory of the entrance of Monsieur the Legate, both began to talk at once. And further on, at the painter's gate, there were other personages, very richly clad. And, at the fountain of St. Innocent, that huntsman who was chasing a hind with a great clamour of dogs and hunting-horns. And at the Paris slaughter-houses, stages, representing the fortress of Dieppe. And when the legate passed, you remember, Gisquette, they made the assault, and the English all had their throats cut and against the gate of the Châtelet there were very fine personages, and on the Porte au Change which was all draped above, and when the legate passed they let fly on the bridge more than two hundred sorts of birds. Wasn't it beautiful, Leonard? "'It will be better to-day,' finally resumed their interlocutor, who seemed to listen to them with impatience. "'Do you promise us that this mystery will be fine?' said Gisquette. "'Without doubt,' he replied. Then he added, with a certain emphasis, "'I am the author of it, damsels.' "'Truly?' said the young girls, quite taken aback. "'Truly,' replied the poet, bridling a little. "'That is to say, there are two of us, Jehan Marchand, who has sawed the planks and erected the framework of the theatre and the woodwork, and I, who have made the piece. My name is Pierre Gringoire.' The author of the Cid could not have said Pierre Cornier with more pride. Our readers have been able to observe that a certain amount of time must have already elapsed from the moment when Jupiter had retired beneath the tapestry to the instant when the author of the new morality had thus abruptly revealed himself to the innocent admiration of Gisquette and Leonard. Remarkable fact! That whole crowd, so tumultuous but a few moments before, now waited amiably on the word of the comedian, which proves the eternal truth, still experienced every day in our theatres, that the best means of making the public wait patiently is to assure them that one is about to begin instantly. However, scholar Joanne had not fallen asleep. Hola, eh! he shouted suddenly, in the midst of the peaceable waiting which had followed the tumult. Jupiter! Madame the Virgin, buffoons of the devil, are you jeering at us? The peace, the peace, commence or we will commence again. That was all that was needed. The music of high and low instruments immediately became audible from the interior of the stage. The tapestry was raised. Four personages, in motley attire and painted faces, emerged from it, climbed the steep ladder of the theatre, and arrived upon the upper platform arranged themselves in a line before the public, whom they saluted with profound reverences. Then the symphony ceased. The mystery was about to begin. 
the four personages, after having reaped a rich reward of applause for their reverences, began, in the midst of profound silence, a prologue, which we gladly spare the reader. Moreover, as happens in our own day, the public was more occupied with the costumes that the actors wore than with the roles that they were enacting, and in truth they were right. All four were dressed in party-colored robes of yellow and white, which were distinguished from each other only by the nature of the stuff. The first was of gold and silver brocade, the second of silk, the third of wool, the fourth of linen. The first of these personages carried in his right hand a sword, the second two golden keys, the third a pair of scales, the fourth a spade. And, in order to aid sluggish minds which would have not seen clearly through the transparency of these attributes, there was to be read in large black letters, on the hem of the robe of brocade, My name is nobility. On the hem of the silken robe, My name is clergy. On the hem of the woolen robe, My name is merchandise. On the hem of the linen robe, My name is labor. The sex of the two male characters was briefly indicated to every judicious spectator, by their shorter robes, and by the cap which they wore on their heads, while the two female characters, less briefly clad, were covered with hoods. Much ill-will would also have been required, not to comprehend, through the medium of the poetry of the prologue, that labor was wedded to merchandise, and clergy to nobility, and that the two happy couples possessed in common a magnificent golden dolphin which they desired to adjudge to the fairest only. So they were roaming about the world, seeking and searching for this beauty, and, after having successfully rejected the Queen of Golconda, the Princess of Trebizond, the daughter of the Grand Khan of Tartary, etc., labor and clergy, nobility and merchandise, had come to rest upon the marble table of the Palais de Justice and to utter, in the presence of the honest audience, as many sentences and maxims as could then be dispensed at the faculty of arts, at examinations, sophisms, determinances, figures, and acts, where the masters took their degrees. All this was, in fact, very fine. Nevertheless, in that throng, upon which the four allegories vied with each other in pouring out floods of metaphors, there was no ear more attentive, no heart that palpitated more, not an eye was more haggard, no neck more outstretched, than the eye, the ear, the neck, and the heart of the author, of the poet, of that brave Pierre Gringoire, who had not been able to resist a moment before the joy of telling his name to two pretty girls. He had retreated a few paces from them, behind his pillar, and there he listened, looked, enjoyed. The amiable applause which had greeted the beginning of his prologue was still echoing in his bosom, and he was completely absorbed in that species of ecstatic contemplation with which an author beholds his ideas fall, one by one, from the mouth of the actor into the vast silence of the audience. Worthy Pierre Gringoire! It pains us to say it, but this first ecstasy was speedily disturbed. 
Hardly had Gringoire raised this intoxicating cup of joy and triumph to his lips when a drop of bitterness was mingled with it. A tattered mendicant, who could not collect any coins, lost as he was in the midst of the crowd, and who had not probably found sufficient indemnity in the pockets of his neighbors, had hit upon the idea of perching himself upon some conspicuous point, in order to attract looks and alms. He had, accordingly, hoisted himself during the first verses of the prologue, with the aid of the pillars of the reserve gallery, to the cornice which ran round the balustrade at its lower edge. And there he had seated himself, soliciting the attention and the pity of the multitude, with his rags and a hideous sore which covered his right arm. However, he uttered not a word. The silence which he preserved allowed the prologue to proceed without hindrance, and no perceptible disorder would have ensued if ill-luck had not willed that the scholar Joan should catch sight, from the heights of his pillar, of the mendicant and his grimaces. A wild fit of laughter took possession of the young scamp, who, without caring that he was interrupting the spectacle, and disturbing the universal composure, shouted boldly, "'Look! See that sickly creature asking alms!' Anyone who has thrown a stone into a frog-pond, or fired a shot into a covey of birds, can form an idea of the effect produced by these incongruous words, in the midst of the general attention. It made Gringoire shudder, as though it had been an electric shock. The prologue stopped short, and all heads turned tumultuously towards the beggar, who, far from being disconcerted by this, saw in this incident a good opportunity for reaping his harvest, who had begun to whine in a doleful way, half closing his eyes the while, "'Charity, please!' "'Well, upon my soul,' resumed Joan, "'it's Clopin Trifot. All away, my friend, did your sore bother you on the leg that you have transferred it to your arm?' So saying, with the dexterity of a monkey, he flung a bit of silver into the grey felt hat which the beggar held in his ailing arm. The mendicant received both the alms and the sarcasm without wincing, and continued in lamentable tones, "'Charity, please!' This episode considerably distracted the attention of the audience, and a goodly number of the spectators, among them Robin Pouspin, and all the clerks at their head, gaily applauded this eccentric duet, which the scholar, with his shrill voice, and the mendicant had just improvised in the middle of the prologue. Gringoire was highly displeased. On recovering from his first stupefaction, he bestirred himself to shout to the four personages on the stage, "'Go on! What the devil! Go on!' without even deigning to cast a glance of disdain upon the two interrupters. At that moment he felt someone pluck at the hem of his surtout. He turned round, and not without ill-humour, and found considerable difficulty in smiling. But he was obliged to do so nevertheless. It was the pretty arm of Gisquette la Gencienne, which, passing through the railing, was soliciting his attention in this manner. "'Monsieur,' said the young girl, "'are they going to continue?' "'Of course,' replied Gringoire, a good deal shocked by the question. "'In that case, monsieur,' she resumed, 
would you have the courtesy to explain to me—' "'What they are about to say?' interrupted Gringoire. "'Well, listen!' "'No!' said Gisquette. "'But what they have said so far!' Gringoire started, like a man whose wound has been probed to the quick. "'A plague on the stupid and dull-witted little girl!' he muttered between his teeth. From that moment forth Gisquette was nothing to him. In the meantime the actors had obeyed his injunction, and the public, seeing that they were beginning to speak again, began once more to listen, not without having lost many beauties in the sort of soldered joint which was formed between the two portions of the piece thus abruptly cut short. Gringoire commented on it bitterly to himself. Nevertheless, tranquillity was gradually restored, the scholar held his peace, the mendicant counted over some coins in his hat, and the piece resumed the upper hand. It was, in fact, a very fine work, and one which, as it seems to us, might be put to use today, by the aid of a little rearrangement. The exposition, rather long and rather empty, that is to say, according to the rules, was simple and Gringoire, in the candid sanctuary of his own conscience, admired its clearness. As the reader may surmise, the four allegorical personages were somewhat weary with having traversed the three sections of the world, without having found suitable opportunity for getting rid of their golden dolphin. Thereupon a eulogy of the marvellous fish, with a thousand delicate allusions to the young betrothed of Margarita Flanders, then sadly cloistered in at Amboise, and without a suspicion that labour and clergy, nobility and merchandise, had just made the circuit of the world in his behalf. The sad Dauphin was then young, was handsome, was stout, and above all, magnificent origin of all royal virtues, he was the son of the Lion of France. I declare that this bold metaphor is admirable and that the natural history of the theatre, on a day of allegory and royal marriage-songs, is not in the least startled by a dolphin who is the son of a lion. It is precisely these rare and pindaric mixtures which prove the poet's enthusiasm. Nevertheless, in order to play the part of critic also, the poet might have developed this beautiful idea in something less than two hundred lines. It is true that the mystery was to last from noon until four o'clock, in accordance with the orders of Monsieur the Provost, and that it was necessary to say something. Besides, the people listened patiently. All at once, in the very middle of a quarrel between Mademoiselle Merchandise and Madame Nobility, at the moment when Monsieur Labour was giving utterance to this wonderful line, in forest ne'er was seen a more triumphant beast. The door of the reserved gallery, which had hitherto remained so importunely closed, opened still more inopportunely, and the ringing voice of the usher announced abruptly, "'His Eminence, Monseigneur the Cardinal de Bourbon!' End of chapter 2《Book First, Chapter Three of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three 
Monsieur the Cardinal. Poor Gringoire! The din of all the great double petards of the Saint-Jean, the discharge of twenty arquebuses on supports, the detonation of that famous serpentine of the Tower of Billy, which, during the siege of Paris on Sunday the 26th of September, 1465, killed seven Burgundians at one blow, the explosion of all the powder stored at the gate of the temple would have rent his ears less rudely at that solemn and dramatic moment than these few words which fell from the lips of the usher. His Eminence, Monseigneur the Cardinal de Bourbon. It is not that Pierre Gringoire either feared or disdained Monsieur the Cardinal. He had neither the weakness nor the audacity for that. A true eclectic, as it would be expressed nowadays, Gringoire was one of those firm and lofty, moderate and calm spirits, which always know how to bear themselves amid all circumstances. Stare in dimidio rerum, and who are full of reason and of liberal philosophy, while still setting store by cardinals. A rare, precious, and never-interrupted race of philosophers to whom wisdom, like another Ariadne, seems to have given a clue of thread which they have been walking along unwinding since the beginning of the world, through the labyrinth of human affairs. One finds them in all ages ever the same, that is to say, always according to all times. And without reckoning, our Pierre Gringoire, who may represent them in the fifteenth century, if we succeed in bestowing upon him the distinction which he deserves, it certainly was their spirit which animated Father de Bruel, when he wrote in the sixteenth these naively sublime words worthy of all the centuries. I am a Parisian by nation, and a Parisian in language, for Parisia, in Greek, signifies liberty of speech, of which I have made use even towards Monseigneurs the Cardinals, uncle and brother to Monsieur the Prince de Conti, always with respect to their greatness, and without offending any one of their suite, which is much to say. There was then neither hatred for the Cardinal, nor disdain for his presence, in the disagreeable impression produced upon Pierre Gringoire. Quite the contrary. Our poet had too much good sense and too threadbare a coat not to attach particular importance to having the numerous allusions in his prologue, and, in particular, the glorification of the Dauphin, son of the Lion of France, fall upon the most eminent ear. But it is not interest which predominates in the noble nature of poets. I suppose that the entity of the poet may be represented by the number ten. It is certain that a chemist, on analyzing and pharmacopolizing it, as Rabelais says, would find it composed of one part interest to nine parts of self-esteem. Now, at the moment when the door had opened to admit the cardinal, the nine parts of self-esteem in Gringoire, swollen and expanded by the breath of popular admiration, were in a state of prodigious augmentation, beneath which disappeared, as though stifled, that imperceptible molecule of which we have just remarked upon in the constitution of poets. A precious ingredient, by the way, a ballast of reality and humanity, without which they would not touch earth. Gringoire enjoyed seeing, 
feeling, fingering, so to speak, an entire assembly, of knaves it is true, but what matters that? Stupefied, petrified, and as though asphyxiated in the presence of the incommensurable tirades which welled up every instant from all parts of his bridal song. I affirm that he shared the general beatitude, and that, quite the reverse of La Fontaine, who at the presentation of his comedy of the Florentine asked, Who is the ill-bred lout who made that rhapsody? Gringoire would gladly have inquired of his neighbor, Whose masterpiece is this? The reader can now judge of the effect produced upon him by the abrupt and unseasonable arrival of the cardinal. That which he had feared was only too fully realized. The entrance of his eminence upset the audience. All heads turned towards the gallery. It was no longer possible to hear oneself. "'The cardinal! The cardinal!' repeated all mouths. The unhappy prologue stopped short for the second time. The cardinal halted for a moment on the threshold of the estrade. While he was sending a rather indifferent glance around the audience, the tumult redoubled. Each person wished to get a better view of him. Each man vied with the other in thrusting his head over his neighbor's shoulder. He was, in fact, an exalted personage, the sight of whom was well worth any other comedy. Charles, Cardinal de Bourbon, Archbishop and Comte of Lyon, primate of the Gauls, was allied both to Louis XI, through his brother Pierre, seigneur de Bourgeot, who had married the king's eldest daughter, and to Charles the Bold, through his mother, Agnes of Burgundy. Now the dominating trait, the peculiar and distinctive trait of the character of the primate of the Gauls, was the spirit of the courtier, and devotion to the powers that be. The reader can form an idea of the numberless embarrassments which this double relationship had caused him, and of all the temporal reefs among which his spiritual bark had been forced to tack, in order not to suffer shipwreck on either Louis or Charles. That Scylla and that Charybdis which had devoured the Duc de Nemours and the Constable de Saint-Paul. Thanks to heaven's mercy, he had made the voyage successfully, and had reached home without hindrance. But although he was in port, and precisely because he was in port, he never recalled without disquiet the varied haps of his political career, so long uneasy and laborious. Thus he was in the habit of saying that the year 1476 had been white and black for him, meaning thereby that in the course of that year he had lost his mother, the Duchesse de la Bourbonnais, and his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, and that one grief had consoled him for the other. Nevertheless, he was a fine man. He had led a joyous cardinal's life, liked to enliven himself with the royal vintage of Chalouau, did not hate Richard de la Garmois and Thomas la Sayard, bestowed alms on pretty girls rather than on old women, and for all these reasons was very agreeable to the populace of Paris. He never went about otherwise than surrounded by a small court of bishops and abbés of high lineage, gallant, jovial, and given to carousing on occasion. And, more than once, the good and devout women of Saint-Germain-d'Auger, when passing at night beneath the brightly illuminated windows of Bourbon, had been scandalized to hear the same voices, 
which had intoned vespers for them during the day, caroling to the clinking of glasses, the Bacchic proverb of Benedict the Twelfth, that pope who had added a third crown to the tiara, Bibamus Papaliter. It was this justly acquired popularity, no doubt, which preserved him on his entrance from any bad reception at the hands of the mob, which had been so displeased but a moment before, and very little disposed to respect a cardinal on the very day when it was to elect a pope. But the Parisians cherished little rancor, and then, having forced the beginning of the play by their authority, the good bourgeois had got the upper hand of the cardinal, and this triumph was sufficient for them. Moreover, the Cardinal de Bourbon was a handsome man. He wore a fine scarlet robe which he carried off very well. That is to say, he had all the women on his side, and consequently the best half of the audience. Assuredly, it would be injustice and bad taste to hoot a cardinal for having come late to the spectacle, when he is a handsome man and when he wears his scarlet robe well. He entered then, bowed to those present with the hereditary smile of the great for the people, and directed his course slowly towards his scarlet velvet armchair, with the air of thinking of something quite different. His cortege, what we should nowadays call his staff, of bishops and abbés invaded the estrade in his train, not without causing redoubled tumult and curiosity among the audience. Each man vied with his neighbor in pointing them out and naming them, in seeing who should recognize at least one of them. This one, the Bishop of Marseilles, Alaudet, if my memory serves me right. This one, the Primacier of Saint-Denis. This one, Robert de Laspinasse, Abbe of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, that libertine brother of a mistress of Louis the Eleventh, all with many errors and absurdities. As for the scholars, they swore. This was their day, their feast of fools, their Saturnalia, the annual orgy of the corporation of law clerks and of the school. There was no turpitude which was not sacred on that day. And then there were gay gossips in the crowd, Simone Quatrelivre, Agnes Legardine, and Rabine Pierre de Beau. Was it not the least that one could do to swear at one's ease and revile the name of God a little on so fine a day, in such good company as dignitaries of the church and loose women? So they did not abstain, and in the midst of the uproar there was a frightful concert of blasphemies and enormities of all the unbridled tongues, the tongues of clerks and students, restrained during the rest of the year by the fear of the hot iron of Saint-Louis. Poor St. Louis! How they set him at defiance in his own court of law! Each one of them selected from the newcomers on the platform, a black, grey, white, or violet cassock as his target. Joannes Frollo de Molendine, in his quality of brother to an archdeacon, boldly attacked the scarlet. He sang in deafening tones, with his impudent eyes fastened on the cardinal, Capa repleto miro! All these details which we here lay bare for the edification of the reader were so covered by the general uproar that they were lost in it before reaching the reserved platforms. Moreover, they would have moved the cardinal but little, so much a part of the customs were the liberties of that day. Moreover, he had another cause for solicitude, 
and his mien as wholly preoccupied with it, which entered the estrade the same time as himself. This was the embassy from Flanders. Not that he was a profound politician, nor was he borrowing trouble about the possible consequences of the marriage of his cousin Marguerite de Burgoyne to his cousin Charles Dauphin de Vienne, nor as to how long the good understanding which had been patched up between the Duke of Austria and the King of France would last, nor how the King of England would take this disdain of his daughter. All that troubled him but little and he gave a warm reception every evening to the wine of the royal vintage of Chaillot, without a suspicion that several flasks of that same wine, somewhat revised and corrected, it is true, by Dr. Quatier, cordially offered to Edward the Fourth by Louis the Eleventh, would, some fine morning, rid Louis the Eleventh of Edward the Fourth. The much-honoured embassy of Monsieur the Duke of Austria, brought the cardinal none of these cares, but it troubled him in another direction. It was, in fact, somewhat hard, and we have already hinted at it on the second page of this book, for him, Charles de Bourbon, to be obliged to feast and receive cordially no one knows what bourgeois, for him, a cardinal, to receive aldermen, for him, a Frenchman, a jolly companion, to receive Flemish beer-drinkers, and that in public. This was certainly one of the most irksome grimaces that he had ever executed for the good pleasure of the king. So he turned toward the door, and with the best grace in the world, so well had he trained himself to it, when the usher announced in a sonorous voice, "'Messieurs, the envoys of Monsieur the Duke of Austria!' it is useless to add that the whole hall did the same. Then arrived, two by two, with a gravity which made a contrast in the midst of the frisky ecclesiastical escort of Charles de Barbon, the eight-and-forty ambassadors of Maximilian of Austria, having at their head the reverend father-in-god Jean, abbot of Saint-Bartin, chancellor of the Golden Fleece, and Jacques de Goy, sieur d'Aubi, grand bailiff of Gant. A deep silence settled over the assembly, accompanied by stifled laughter at the preposterous names and all the bourgeois designations which each of these personages transmitted with imperturbable gravity to the usher, who then tossed names and titles pell-mell and mutilated to the crowd below. There were Master Louis Reloff, alderman of the city of Louvain, Monsieur Clay Datouet, alderman of Brussels. Monsieur Paul de Beust, Sieur de Vormazel, President of Flanders, Master Jehan Collegans, Burgomaster of the city of Antwerp, Master Georges de la Muere, First Alderman of the Quare of the city of Gant, Master Geldof van der Heeg, First Alderman of the Parches of the said town, and the Sieur de Beerbeck, and Jehan Pinnock, and Jehan de Marzel, etc., etc., etc. Bailiffs, aldermen, burgomasters, burgomasters, aldermen, bailiffs, all stiff, affectedly grave, formal, dressed out in velvet and damask, hooded with caps of black velvet, with great tufts of cypress gold thread. Good Flemish heads, after all, severe and worthy faces of the family which Rembrandt makes to stand out so strong and grave from the black background of his night patrol. 
personages, all of whom bore, written on their brows, that Maximilian of Austria had done well in trusting implicitly, as the manifest ran, in their sense, valor, experience, loyalty, and good wisdom. There was one exception, however. It was a subtle, intelligent, crafty-looking face, a sort of combined monkey and diplomat fizz, before whom the cardinal made three steps and a profound bow, and whose name, nevertheless, was only Guillaume Rhyme, counsellor and pensioner of the city of Ghent. Few persons were then aware who Guillaume Rhyme was, a rare genius who, in a time of revolution, would have made a brilliant appearance on the surface of events, but who, in the fifteenth century, was reduced to cavernous intrigues and to living in mines, as the Duc de Saint-Simon expresses it. Nevertheless, he was appreciated by the miner of Europe. He plotted familiarly with Louis XI, and often lent a hand to the king's secret jobs. All which things were quite unknown to that throng, who were amazed at the cardinal's politeness to that frail figure of a Flemish bailiff. End of chapter 3book first chapter 4 of the hunchback of notre dame by victor hugo this librivox recording is in the public domain book first chapter 4 master jacques caponole while the pensioner of ghent and his eminence were exchanging very low bows and a few words in voices still lower a man of lofty stature with a large face and broad shoulders presented himself in order to enter abreast with Guillaume Rhyme. One would have pronounced him a bulldog by the side of a fox. His felt doublet and leather jerkin made a spot on the velvet and silk which surrounded him. Presuming that he was some groom who had stolen in, the usher stopped him. "'Hold, my friend! You cannot pass!' The man in the leather jerkin shouldered him aside. "'What does this knave want with me?' said he, in stentorian tones, which rendered the entire hall attentive to this strange colloquy. "'Don't you see that I am one of them?' "'Your name?' demanded the usher. "'Jacques Caponole. "'Your titles?' "'Hosier at the sign of the three little chains of Ghent.' The usher recoiled. One might bring oneself to announce aldermen and burgomasters, but a hosier was too much. The cardinal was on thorns. All the people were staring and listening. For two days his eminence had been exerting his utmost efforts to lick these Flemish bears into shape, and to render them a little more presentable to the public, and this freak was startling. But Guillaume Rhyme, with his polished smile, approached the usher. "'Announce Master Jacques Caponol, clerk of the alderman of the city of Ghent.' he whispered very low. "'Usher,' interposed the cardinal, aloud, "'announce Master Jacques Caponole, clerk of the alderman of the illustrious city of Ghent.' This was a mistake. Guillaume Rhyme alone might have conjured away the difficulty, but Caponole had heard the cardinal. "'No cross of God!' he exclaimed, in his voice of thunder. "'Jacques Caponole Hosier, 
Do you hear, Usher? Nothing more, nothing less. Cross of God! Hosier, that's fine enough. The Monsieur the Archduke has more than once sought his gant in my hose." Laughter and applause burst forth. A jest is always understood in Paris, and consequently always applauded. Let us add that Capanol was of the people, and that the auditors which surrounded him were also of the people. Thus the communication between him and them had been prompt, electric, and, so to speak, on a level. The haughty air of the Flemish hosier, by humiliating the courtiers, had touched in all these plebeian souls that latent sentiment of dignity still vague and indistinct in the fifteenth century. This hosier was an equal, who had just held his own before Monsieur the Cardinal. A very sweet reflection to poor fellows habituated to respect and obedience towards the underlings of the sergeants of the bailiff of saint Genevieve, the Cardinal's train-bearer. Capenot proudly saluted his eminence, who returned the salute of the all-powerful bourgeois feared by Louis XI. Then, while Guillaume Rheim, a sage and malicious man, as Philippe de Comenet puts it, watched them both with a smile of raillery and superiority, each sought his place, the cardinal quite abashed and troubled, Capenot tranquil and haughty, and thinking, no doubt, that his title of hosier was as good as any other, after all, and that Marie of Burgundy, mother to that Marguerite whom Campanol was to-day bestowing in marriage, would have been less afraid of the cardinal than of the hosier. For it is not a cardinal who would have stirred up a revolt among the men of Ghent against the favorites of the daughter of Charles the Bold. It is not a cardinal who could have fortified the populace with a word against her tears and prayers, when the maid of Flanders came to supplicate her people in their behalf, even at the very foot of the scaffold, while the hosier had only to raise his leather elbow in order to cause to fall your two heads, the most illustrious seigneurs Guy d'Ambercourt and Chancellor Guillaume Hugonet. Nevertheless, it was over for the poor cardinal, and he was obliged to quaff to the dregs the bitter cup of being in such bad company. The reader has probably not forgotten the impudent beggar who had been clinging fast to the fringes of the cardinal's gallery ever since the beginning of the prologue. The arrival of the illustrious guests had by no means caused him to relax his hold, and while the prelates and ambassadors were packing themselves into the stalls, like genuine Flemish herrings, he settled himself at his ease, and boldly crossed his legs on the architrave. The insolence of this proceeding was extraordinary, yet no one noticed it at first, the attention of all being directed elsewhere. He, on his side, perceived nothing that was going on in the hall. He wagged his head with the unconcern of a Neapolitan, repeating from time to time, amid the clamor, as from a mechanical habit, "'Charity, please!' And assuredly he was, out of all those present, the only one who had not deigned to turn his head at the altercation between Capanol and the usher. Now chance ordained that the master hosier of Ghent, with whom the people were already in lively sympathy, and upon whom all eyes were riveted, should come and seat himself in the front row of the gallery, directly above the mendicant, 
and people were not a little amazed to see the Flemish ambassador, on concluding his inspection of the knave thus placed beneath his eyes, bestow a friendly tap on that ragged shoulder. The beggar turned round. There was surprise, recognition, a lighting up of the two countenances, and so forth. Then, without paying the slightest heed in the world to the spectators, the hosier and the wretched being began to converse in a low tone, holding each other's hands. In the meantime, while the rags of Clopin Trifot, spread out upon the cloth of gold of the dais, produced the effect of a caterpillar on an orange. The novelty of this singular scene excited such a murmur of mirth and gaiety in the hall that the cardinal was not slow to perceive it. He half bent forward, and, as from the point where he was placed, he could catch only an imperfect view of Truifaut's ignominious doublet. He very naturally imagined that the mendicant was asking alms, and, disgusted with his audacity, he exclaimed, "'Bailiff of the courts, toss me that knave into the river!' "'Cross of God, Monseigneur the Cardinal,' said Coppenole, without quitting Clopin's hand, "'he is a friend of mine!' "'Good! Good!' shouted the populace. From that moment Master Coppenole enjoyed in Paris, as in Ghent, great favour with the people, for men of that sort do enjoy it, says Philippe de Comenet, when they are thus disorderly. The cardinal bit his lips. He bent towards his neighbour, the abbé of saint Genevieve, and said to him in a low tone, "'Find ambassadors, Monsieur the Archduke sends here, to announce to us Madame Marguerite.' "'Your eminence,' replied the abbé, "'wastes your politeness on these Flemish swine. Margaritas antiporcos! Pearls before swine!' "'Say rather,' retorted the cardinal with a smile, "'porcos anti-margaritum! Swine before the pearl!' The whole little court in cassocks went into ecstasies over this play upon words. The cardinal felt a little relieved. He was quits with Coppenole. He also had had his jest applauded. Now will those of our readers who possess the power of generalizing an image or an idea, as the expression runs into the style of today, permit us to ask them if they have formed a very clear conception of the spectacle presented at this moment, upon which we have arrested their attention, by the vast parallelogram of the grand hall of the palace? In the middle of the hall, backed against the western wall, a large and magnificent gallery draped with cloth of gold, into which enter in procession, through a small arched door, grave personages, announced successively by the shrill voice of an usher. On the front benches were already a number of venerable figures, muffled in ermine, velvet, and scarlet. Around the dais, which remained silent and dignified, Below opposite, everywhere, a great crowd and a great murmur. Thousands of glances directed by the people on each face upon the dais, a thousand whispers over each name. Certainly this spectacle is curious, and well deserves the attention of the spectators. But yonder, quite at the end, what is that sort of trestle-work with four motley puppets upon it, and more below? Who is that man beside the trestle? with a black doublet and a pale face. Alas, my dear reader, it is Pierre Gringoire and his prologue. We have all forgotten him completely. 
This is precisely what he feared. From the moment of the cardinal's entrance, Gringoire had never ceased to tremble for the safety of his prologue. At first he had enjoined the actors, who had stopped in suspense, to continue, and to raise their voices. Then, perceiving that no one was listening, he had stopped them. And during the entire quarter of an hour that the interruption lasted, he had not ceased to stamp, to flounce about, to appeal to Gisquette and Leonard, and to urge his neighbors to the continuance of the prologue. All in vain. No one quitted the cardinal, the embassy, and the gallery, sole center of this vast circle of visual rays. We must also believe, and we say it with regret, that the prologue had begun slightly to weary the audience at the moment when his eminence had arrived, and created a diversion in so terrible a fashion. After all, on the gallery as well as on the marble table the spectacle was the same, the conflict of labor and clergy, of nobility and merchandise. And many people preferred to see them alive, breathing, moving, elbowing each other in flesh and blood, in this Flemish embassy, in this episcopal court, under the cardinal's robe, under Campanol's jerkin, then painted, decked out, talking in verse, and, so to speak, stuffed beneath the yellow amid white tunics in which Gringoire had so ridiculously clothed them. Nevertheless, when our poet beheld quiet re-established to some extent, he devised a stratagem which might have redeemed all. "'Monsieur,' he said, turning towards one of his neighbors, a fine big man with a patient face, "'suppose we begin again.' "'What?' said his neighbor. "'Eh, the mystery,' said Gringoire. "'As you like,' returned his neighbor. This semi-approbation sufficed for Gringoire, and conducting his own affairs, he began to shout, confounding himself with the crowd as much as possible. "'Begin the mystery again! Begin again!' "'The devil!' said Joannes de Melendino. "'What are they jabbering down yonder at the end of the hall?' For Gringoire was making noise enough for four. "'Say, comrades, isn't that mystery finished? They want to begin it all over again.' That's not fair!" "'No! No!' shouted all the scholars. "'Down with the mystery! Down with it!' But Gringoire had multiplied himself, and only shouted the more vigorously, "'Begin again! Begin again!' These clamors attracted the attention of the cardinal. "'Monsieur Bailiff of the Courts,' said he to a tall black man, placed a few paces from him. Are those knaves in a holy-water vessel that they make such a hellish noise?" The bailiff of the courts was a sort of amphibious magistrate, a sort of bat of the judicial order, related to both the rat and the bird, the judge and the soldier. He approached his eminence, and not without a good deal of fear of the latter's displeasure, he awkwardly explained to him the seeming disrespect of the audience, that noonday had arrived before his eminence and that the comedians had been forced to begin without waiting for his eminence. The cardinal burst into a laugh. "'On my faith! The rector of the university ought to have done the same! What say you, Master Guillaume Rheim?' "'Monseigneur,' replied Guillaume Rheim, "'let us be content with having escaped half of the comedy. There is at least that much gained.' 
"'Can these rascals continue their farce?' asked the bailiff. "'Continue, continue,' said the cardinal. "'It's all the same to me. I'll read my breviary in the meantime.' The bailiff advanced to the edge of the estrade, and cried, after having invoked silence by a wave of the hand, "'Bourgeois, rustics and citizens! In order to satisfy those who wish the play to begin again, and those who wish it to end, his eminence orders that it be continued.' Both parties were forced to resign themselves. But the public and the author long cherished a grudge against the cardinal. So the personages on the stage took up their parts, and Gringoire hoped that the rest of his work at least would be listened to. This hope was speedily dispelled like his other illusions. Silence had indeed been restored in the audience after a fashion. But Gringoire had not observed that, at the moment when the cardinal gave the order to continue, the gallery was far from full, and that after the Flemish envoys there had arrived, new personages, forming part of the cortege, whose names and ranks shouted out in the midst of his dialogue by the intermittent cry of the usher, produced considerable ravages in it. Let the reader imagine the effect in the midst of a theatrical piece of the yelping of an usher flinging in between two rhymes, and often in the middle of a line, parentheses like the following, Master Jacques Chamelieu, procurator to the king in the ecclesiastical courts, Jean d'Arlay, equerry guardian of the office of chevalier of the night-watch of the city of Paris, Monsieur Galliot de Genoyac, chevalier, Seigneur de Broussac, master of the king's artillery. Master Du Reguayer, surveyor of the woods and forests of the king our sovereign in the land of France, Champagne, and Brie. Monsieur Louis de Gravy, chevalier, councillor, and chamberlain of the king, admiral of France, keeper of the forest of Vincennes. Master Denis Le Mercier, guardian of the house of the blind at Paris, etc., etc., etc. This was becoming unbearable. This strange accompaniment, which rendered it difficult to follow the piece, made Gringoire all the more indignant because he could not conceal from himself the fact that the interest was continually increasing, and that all his work required was a chance of being heard. It was, in fact, difficult to imagine a more ingenious and more dramatic composition. The four personages of the prologue were bewailing themselves in their mortal embarrassment, when Venus in person, Vera incessa patuit dea, presented herself to them, clad in a fine robe bearing the heraldic device of the ship of the city of Paris. She had come herself to claim the dolphin promised to the most beautiful. Jupiter, whose thunder could be heard rumbling in the dressing-room, supported her claim, and Venus was on the point of carrying it off, that is to say, without allegory, of marrying Monsieur the Dauphin, when a young child, clad in white damask and holding in her hand a daisy, a transparent personification of Mademoiselle Marguerite of Flanders, came to contest it with Venus. Theatrical Effect and Change after a dispute, Venus, Marguerite, and the assistants agreed to submit to the good judgment of time-holy virgin. 
there was another good part, that of the King of Mesopotamia, but through so many interruptions it was difficult to make out what end he served. All these persons had ascended by ladder to the stage. But all was over. None of these beauties had been felt nor understood. On the entrance of the cardinal one would have said that an invisible magic thread had suddenly drawn all glances from the marble table to the gallery, from the southern to the western extremity of the hall. Nothing could disenchant the audience. All eyes remained fixed there, and the newcomers and their accursed names and their faces and their costumes afforded a continual diversion. This was very distressing. With the exception of Gisquette and Leonard, who turned round from time to time when Gringoire plucked them by the sleeve, with the exception of the big, patient neighbor, no one listened. No one looked at the poor, deserted morality full face. Gringoire saw only profiles. With what bitterness did he behold this whole erection of glory and of poetry crumbled away bit by bit! And to think that these people had been upon the point of instituting a revolt against the bailiff through impatience to hear his work! Now that they had it, they did not care for it! This same representation which had been begun amid so unanimous an acclamation! Eternal flood and ebb of popular favor! To think that they had been on the point of hanging the bailiff's sergeant! What would he not have given to be still at that hour of honey? But the usher's brutal monologue came to an end, everyone had arrived, and Gringoire breathed freely once more, the actors continued bravely. But Master Capenol, the hosier, must needs rise of a sudden, and Gringoire was forced to listen to him deliver, amid universal attention, the following abominable harangue. Messieurs the bourgeois and squires of Paris, I don't know, cross of God, what we are doing here. I certainly do see yonder in the corner on that stage some people who appear to be fighting. I don't know whether that is what you call a mystery, but it is not amusing. They quarrel with their tongues, and nothing more. I have been waiting for the first blow this quarter of an hour. Nothing comes. They are cowards who only scratch each other with insults. You ought to send for the fighters of London or Rotterdam, and I can tell you, you would have had blows of the fist that could be heard in the place. But these men excite our pity. They ought at least to give us a Moorish dance or some other mummer. That is not what was told me. I was promised a feast of fools, with the election of a pope. We have our pope of fools at Ghent also. We're not behindhand in that, cross of God. But this is the way we manage it. We collect a crowd like this one here, then each person in turn passes his head through a hole, and makes a grimace at the rest. Time one who makes the ugliest is elected pope by general acclamation. That's the way it is. It is very diverting. Would you like to make your pope after the fashion of my country? At all events, it will be less wearisome than to listen to chatterers. If they wish to come and make their grimaces through the hole, they can join the game. What say you, messieurs les bourgeois? You have here enough grotesque specimens of both sexes to allow of laughing in Flemish fashion and there are enough of us ugly in countenance to hope for a fine grinning match. 
Gringoire would have liked to retort. Stupefaction, rage, indignation deprived him of words. Moreover, the suggestion of the popular hosier was received with such enthusiasm by these bourgeois who were flattered at being called squires that all resistance was useless. There was nothing to be done but to allow oneself to drift with the torrent. Gringoire hid his face between his two hands, not being so fortunate as to have a mantle with which to veil his head, like Agamemnon of Tamantus. End of chapter 4book first chapter 5 of the hunchback of notre dame by victor hugo this librivox recording is in the public domain book first chapter 5 quasimodo in the twinkling of an eye all was ready to execute copinol's idea bourgeois scholars and law clerks all set to work the little chapel situated opposite the marble table was selected for the scene of the grinning match a pane broken in the pretty rose window above the door left free a circle of stone through which it was agreed that the competitor should thrust their heads. In order to reach it, it was only necessary to mount upon a couple of hogsheads, which had been produced from I know not where, and perched one upon the other after a fashion. It was settled that each candidate, man or woman, for it was possible to choose a female pope, should, for the sake of leaving the impression of his grimace fresh and complete, cover his face and remain concealed in the chapel until the moment of his appearance. In less than an instant the chapel was crowded with competitors, upon whom the door was then closed. Capanol, from his post, ordered all, directed all, arranged all. During the uproar the cardinal, no less abashed than Gringoire, had retired with all his suite, under the pretext of business and vespers, without the crowd which his arrival had so deeply stirred being in the least moved by his departure. Guillaume Rhyme was the only one who noticed his eminence's discomfiture. The attention of the populace, like the sun, pursued its revolution. Having set out from one end of the hall, and halted for a space in the middle, it had now reached the other end. The marble table, the brocaded gallery, had each had their day. It was now the turn of the chapel of Louis the Eleventh. Henceforth the field was open to all folly. There was no one there now but the Flemings and the rabble. The grimaces began. The first face which appeared at the aperture, with eyelids turned up to the reds, a mouth open like a maw, and a brow wrinkled like our hussar boots of the empire, evoked such an inextinguishable peal of laughter that Homer would have taken all these louts for gods. Nevertheless, the grand hall was anything but Olympus, and Gringoire's poor Jupiter knew it better than anyone else. A second and third grimace followed, then another and another, and the laughter and transports of delight went on increasing. There was, in this spectacle, a peculiar power of intoxication and fascination, of which it would be difficult to convey to the reader of our day and our salons any idea. Let the reader picture to himself a series of visages presenting successfully all geometric forms, from the triangle to the trapezium, 
from the cone to the polyhedron, all human expressions from wrath to lewdness, all ages from the wrinkles of the newborn babe to the wrinkles of the aged and dying, all religious phantasmagories from fawn to Beelzebub, all animal profiles from the maw to the beak, from the jowl to the muzzle. Let the reader imagine all these grotesque figures of the Pont Neuf, whose nightmares petrified beneath the hand of Germain Pilon, assuming life and breath, and coming in to stare at you in the face with burning eyes, all the masks of the Carnival of Venice passing in succession before your glass, in a word, a human kaleidoscope. The orgy grew more and more Flemish. Ten years could have given but a very imperfect idea of it. Let the reader picture to himself, in bacchanal form, Salvatore Rosa's battle. There were no longer either scholars or ambassadors or bourgeois or men or women. There was no longer any Clopin Truffaut or Gilles Lecornu or Marie Quatrelivres or Robin Pospin. All was universal license. The Grand Hall was no longer anything but a vast furnace of effrontery and joviality, where every mouth was a cry, every individual a posture. Everything shouted and howled. The strange visages which came in turn to gnash their teeth in the rose window were like so many brands cast into the brazier, and from the whole of this effervescing crowd there escaped, as from a furnace, a sharp, piercing, stinging noise hissing like the wings of a gnat. Ho, oh, eh, hey, curse it! Just look at that face! It's not good for anything! Goyamet Mogere Puy, just look at that bull's muzzle! It only lacks the horns! It can't be your husband! Another! Belly of the Pope! What sort of a grimace is that? Hola, eh, hey, that's cheating! One must show only one's face! That damned Perrette Calabot, she's capable of that! Good, good, I'm stifling! There's a fellow whose ears won't go through! etc., etc. But we must do justice to our friend Jehan. In the midst of this witch's Sabbath, he was still to be seen on the top of his pillar, like the cabin boy on the topmast. He floundered about with incredible fury. His mouth was wide open, and from it there escaped a cry which no one heard, not that it was covered by the general clamour, great as that was, but because it attained, no doubt, the limit of perceptible sharp sounds, the thousand vibrations of Savure, or the eight thousands of Biot. As for Gringoire, the first moment of depression having passed, he had regained his composure. He had hardened himself against adversity. "'Continue!' he had said for the third time to his comedians, speaking machines. Then, as he was marching with great strides in front of the marble table, a fancy seized him to go and appear in his turn at the aperture of the chapel, were it only for the pleasure of making a grimace at that ungrateful populace. But no, that would not be worthy of us. No vengeance. Let us combat until the end.' he repeated to himself. The power of poetry over people is great. I will bring them back. We shall see which will carry the day, grimaces or polite literature. Alas, 
he had been left the sole spectator of his peace. It was far worse than it had been a little while before. He no longer beheld anything but backs. I am mistaken. The big patient man, whom he had already consulted in a critical moment, had remained with his face turned towards the stage. As for Gisquette and Leonard, they had deserted him long ago. Gringoire was touched to the heart by the fidelity of his only spectator. He approached him and addressed him, shaking his arm slightly, for the good man was leaning on the balustrade and dozing a little. "'Monsieur,' said Gringoire, "'I thank you.' "'Monsieur,' replied the big man with a yawn, "'for what?' "'I see what wearies you,' resumed the poet. "'Tis all this noise which prevents your hearing comfortably. But be at ease. Your name shall descend to posterity. Your name, if you please?" Renaud Chateau, guardian of the seals of the Châtelet of Paris, at your service. "'Monsieur, you are the only representative of the muses here,' said Gringoire. "'You are too kind, sir,' said the guardian of the seals at the Châtelet. "'You are the only one,' resumed Gringoire, "'who has listened to the piece decorously. What do you think of it?' "'Eh, eh!' replied the fat magistrate, half aroused. "'It's tolerably jolly, that's a fact.' Gringoire was forced to content himself with this eulogy, for a thunder of applause, mingled with a prodigious acclamation, cut their conversation short. The Pope of the Fools had been elected. "'Noel! Noel! Noel!' shouted the people on all sides that was, in fact, a marvellous grimace which was beaming at that moment through the aperture in the rose window. After all the pentagonal, hexagonal, and whimsical faces which had succeeded each other at the whole without realizing the ideal of the grotesque which their imaginations, excited by the orgy, had constructed, nothing less was needed to win their suffrages than the sublime grimace which had just dazzled the assembly. Master Caponol himself applauded and Clopin Trifot, who had been among the competitors, and God knows what intensity of ugliness his visage could attain, confessed himself conquered. We will do the same. We shall not try to give the reader an idea of that tetrahedral nose, that horseshoe mouth, that little left eye obstructed with a red, bushy, bristling eyebrow, while the right eye disappeared entirely beneath an enormous wart, of those teeth in disarray broken here and there like the embattled parapet of a fortress, of that callous lip upon which one of those teeth encroached, like the tusk of an elephant, of that forked chin, and above all, of the expression spread over the whole, of that mixture of malice, amazement, and sadness. Let the reader dream of this whole if he can. The acclamation was unanimous. People rushed towards the chapel. They made the lucky Pope of the Fools come forth in triumph. But it was then that surprise and admiration attained their highest pitch. The grimace was his face. Or rather, his whole person was a grimace. A huge head, bristling with red hair, between his shoulders an enormous hump, a counterpart perceptible in front, a system of thighs and legs so strangely astray that they could touch each other only at the knees, 
and viewed from the front, resembled the crescents of two scythes joined by the handles. Large feet, monstrous hands, and with all this deformity, an indescribable and redoubtable air of vigor, agility, and courage. Strange exception to the eternal rule which wills that force as well as beauty shall be the result of harmony. Such was the Pope whom the fools had just chosen for themselves. One would have pronounced him a giant who had been broken and badly put together again. When this species of Cyclops appeared on the threshold of the chapel, motionless, squat, and almost as broad as he was tall, squared on the base as a great man says, with his doublet half-red, half-violet, sewn with silver bells, and above all, in the perfection of his ugliness, the populace recognized him on the instant, and shouted with one voice, "'Tis Quasimodo, the bell-ringer! Tis Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre-Dame! Quasimodo, the one-eyed! Quasimodo, the bandy-legged! Noel! Noel!" It will be seen that the poor fellow had a choice of surnames. "'Let the women with child beware!' shouted the scholars. "'Or those who wish to be!' resumed Joanne. The women did, in fact, hide their faces. "'Oh, the horrible monkey!' said one of them. "'As wicked as he is ugly!' retorted another. "'He is the devil!' added a third. I have the misfortune to live near Notre-Dame. I hear him prowling round the eaves by night. With the cats! He's always on our roofs. He throws spells down our chimneys. The other evening he came and made a grimace at me through my attic window. I thought that it was a man, such a fright as I had. I'm sure that he goes to the witch's Sabbath. Once he left a broom on my leads. Oh, what a displeasing hunchback's face! Oh, what an ill-favored soul! Phew! The men, on the contrary, were delighted and applauded. Quasimodo, the object of the tumult, still stood on the threshold of the chapel, somber and grave, and allowed them to admire him. One scholar, Robin Puispan, I think, came and laughed in his face, and too close. Quasimodo contented himself with taking him by the girdle and hurling him ten paces off amid the crowd, all without uttering a word. Master Caponole, in amazement, approached him. "'Cross of God! Holy Father! You possess the handsomest ugliness that I have ever beheld in my life! You would deserve to be Pope at Rome as well as at Paris!' So saying, he placed his hand gaily on his shoulder. Quasimodo did not stir. Cupinole went on. "'You are a rogue with whom I have a fancy for carousing, were it to cost me a new dozen of twelve livres of tours. How does it strike you?' Quasimodo made no reply. "'Cross of God!' said the hosier. "'Are you deaf?' He was, in truth, deaf. Nevertheless, he began to grow impatient with Cupinole's behavior and suddenly turned towards him, with so formidable a gnashing of teeth, that the Flemish giant recoiled, like a bulldog before a cat. Then there was created around that strange personage a circle of terror and respect, whose radius was at least fifteen geometrical feet. 
an old woman explained to Campanol that Quasimodo was deaf. "'Deaf!' said the hosier, with his great Flemish laugh. "'Cross of God! He's a perfect pope!' "'He! I recognize him!' exclaimed Jehan, who had at last descended from his capital in order to see Quasimodo at closer quarters. "'He's the bell-ringer of my brother, the archdeacon! Good day, Quasimodo!' "'What a devil of a man!' said Robin Pouspin, still all bruised with his fall. "'He shows himself. He's a hunchback. He walks. He's bandy-legged. He looks at you. He's one-eyed. You speak to him. He's deaf. And what does this Polyphemus do with his tongue?' "'He speaks when he chooses,' said the old woman. "'He became deaf through ringing the bells. He is not dumb.' That he lacks, remarks Jehan. And he has one eye too many, added Robin Pouspin. Not at all, says Jehan wisely. A one-eyed man is far less complete than a blind man. He knows what he lacks. In the meantime all the beggars, all the lackeys, all the cut-purses, joined with the scholars, had gone in procession to seek, in the cupboard of the law-clerk's company, the cardboard tiara, and the derisive robe of the Pope of Fools. Quasimodo allowed them to array him in them without wincing, and with a sort of proud docility. Then they made him seat himself on a motley litter. Twelve officers of the Fraternity of Fools raised him on their shoulders, and a sort of bitter and disdainful joy lighted up the morose face of the Cyclops, when he beheld beneath his deformed feet all those heads of the handsome, straight, well-made men. Then the ragged and howling procession set out on its march, according to custom, around the inner galleries of the courts, before making the circuit of the streets and squares. End of chapter 5《Book First, Chapter Six of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six Esmeralda. We are delighted to be able to inform the reader that during the whole of this scene, Gringoire and his piece had stood firm. His actors, spurred on by him, had not ceased to spout his comedy, and he had not ceased to listen to it. He had made up his mind about the tumult, and was determined to proceed to the end, not giving up the hope of a return of attention on the part of the public. This gleam of hope acquired fresh life, when he saw Quasimodo, Capanol, and the deafening escort of the Pope of the Procession of Fools quit the hall amid the great uproar. The throng rushed eagerly after them. "'Good,' he said to himself, "'there go all the mischief-makers.' Unfortunately, all the mischief-makers constituted the entire audience. In the twinkling of an eye the grand hall was empty. To tell the truth, a few spectators still remained, some scattered, others in groups around the pillars, women, old men, or children, who had had enough of the uproar and tumult. Some scholars were still perched astride of the window-sills, engaged in gazing into the place. 
Well, thought Gringoire, here are still as many as are required to hear the end of my mystery. They are few in number, but it is a choice audience, a lettered audience. An instant later, a symphony, which had been intended to produce the greatest effect on the arrival of the Virgin, was lacking. Gringoire perceived that his music had been carried off by the procession of the Pope of Fools. "'Skip it,' said he, stoically. He approached a group of bourgeois, who seemed to him to be discussing his piece. This is the fragment of conversation which he caught. You know Master Chenoteau, the Hôtel de Navarre, which belonged to Monsieur de Nemours? Yes, opposite the Chapelle de Brac. Well, the Treasury has just let it to Guillaume Alexandre, historian, for six ivres, eight sols, Parisian a year. How rents are going up! Come, said Gringoire to himself with a sigh, the others are listening. Comrades! suddenly shouted one of the young scamps from the window. La Esmeralda! La Esmeralda in the place! This word produced a magical effect. Every one who was left in the hall flew to the windows, climbing the walls in order to see, and repeating, La Esmeralda! La Esmeralda! At the same time a great sound of applause was heard from without. What's the meaning of this, of the Esmeralda? said Gringoire, wringing his hands in despair. Ah, good heavens! It seems to be the turn of the windows now." He returned towards the marble table, and saw that the representation had been interrupted. It was precisely at the instant when Jupiter should have appeared with his thunder. But Jupiter was standing motionless at the foot of the stage. "'Michel Gibon!' cried the irritated poet. "'What are you doing there? Is that your part?' Come up!" "'Alas!' said Jupiter. "'A scholar has just seized the ladder!' Gringoire looked. It was all but too true. All communication between his plot and its solution was intercepted. "'The rascal!' he murmured. "'And why did he take that ladder?' "'In order to go and see Esmeralda,' replied Jupiter piteously. He said, "'Come, here's a ladder that's of no use!' and he took it. This was the last blow. Gringoire received it with resignation. "'May the devil fly away with you,' he said to the comedian, "'and if I get my pay you shall receive yours.' Then he beat a retreat with drooping head, but the last in the field, like a general who has fought well. And as he descended the winding stairs of the courts, a fine rabble of asses and dolts, these Parisians," he muttered between his teeth. They come to hear a mystery and don't listen to it at all. They are engrossed by everyone, by Chopin Trefou, by the Cardinal, by Caponol, by Quasimodo, by the devil. But by the Madame the Virgin Mary? Not at all. If I had known, I'd have given you Virgin Mary, you ninnies, and I to come to see the faces and behold only backs, to be a poet and to reap the success of an apothecary. It is true that Homerus begged through the Greek towns, and that Naso died in exile among the Muscovites, but may the devil flay me if I understand what they mean with their Esmeralda. What is that word in the first place? Tis Egyptian! End of chapter 6
Book Second, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Second, Chapter One From Charybdis to Scylla. Night comes on early in January. The streets were already dark when Gringoire issued forth from the courts. This gloom pleased him. He was in haste to reach some obscure and deserted alley, in order there to meditate at his ease, and in order that the philosopher might place the first dressing upon the wound of the poet. Philosophy, moreover, was his sole refuge, for he did not know where he was to lodge for the night. After the brilliant failure of his first theatrical venture, he dared not return to the lodging which he occupied in the Rue Grenier sur Leo, opposite to the Port au Foin, having depended upon receiving from Monsieur the Provost for his epithalamium the wherewithal to pay Master Guillaume du Cyr, farmer of the taxes on cloven-footed animals in Paris, the rent which he owed him, that is to say, twelve sols Parisian twelve times the value of all that he possessed in the world, including his trunk-hose, his shirt, and his cap. After reflecting a moment, temporarily sheltered beneath the little wicket of the prison of the treasurer of the Saint-Chapelle, as to the shelter which he would select for the night, having all the pavements of Paris to choose from, he remembered to have noticed the week previously, in the Rue de la Sabaterie, at the door of a councillor of the Parliament, a stepping-stone for mounting a mule, and to have said to himself that the stone would furnish, on occasion, a very excellent pillow for a mendicant or a poet. He thanked Providence for having sent this happy idea to him. But, as he was preparing to cross the Place, in order to reach the torturous labyrinth of the city, where meander all those old sister streets, the Rues de la Barillerie, de la Vieille Draperie, de la Savaterie, de la Jouverie, etc., still extant to-day with their nine-story houses, he saw the procession of the Pope of Fools, which was also emerging from the courthouse, and rushing across the courtyard with great cries, a great flashing of torches, and the music which belonged to him, Gringoire. This sight revived the pain of his self-love. He fled in the bitterness of his dramatic misadventure, everything which reminded him of the festival of that day irritated his wound and made it bleed. He was on the point of turning to the Pont Saint-Michel. Children were running about here and there with fire-lances and rockets. "'Pest on firework candles!' said Gringoire, and he fell back on the Pont au Change. To the house at the head of the bridge there had been affixed three small banners, representing the King, the Dauphin, and Marguerite of Flanders, and six little pennons on which were portrayed the Duke of Austria, the Cardinal de Bourbon, Monsieur de Beaujau, and Madame Jeanne de France, and Monsieur the Bastard of Bourbon, I know not whom else, all being illuminated with torches. The rabble were admiring. "'Happy painter Jean Farbeau!' said Gringoire with a deep sigh, and he turned his back upon the bannerets and pennons. A street opened before him. He thought it so dark and deserted that he hoped to there escape from all the rumours as well as from all the gleams of the festival. At the end of a few moments his foot came in contact with an obstacle. He stumbled and fell. 
It was the May Truss, which the clerks of the clerk's law court had deposited that morning at the door of a president of the Parliament, in honor of the solemnity of the day. Gringoire bore this new disaster heroically. He picked himself up and reached the water's edge. After leaving behind him the civic tournelle and the criminal tower, and skirted the great walls of the king's garden, on that unpaved strand where the mud reached to his ankles, he reached the western point of the city, and considered for some time the islet of the Passeur aux Vaches, which has disappeared beneath the bronze horse of the Pont Neuf. The islet appeared to him in the shadows like a black mass, beyond the narrow strip of whitish water which separated him from it. One could divine by the ray of a tiny light, the sort of hut in the form of a beehive where the ferrymen of cows took refuge at night. Happy ferryman, thought Gringoire, you do not dream of glory, and you do not make marriage songs. What matters it to you if kings and duchesses of Burgundy marry? You know no other daisies, marguerites, than those which your April greensward gives your cows to browse upon, while I, a poet, am hooted, and shiver, and owe twelve sous, and the soles of my shoes are so transparent that they might serve as glasses for your lantern. Thanks, ferryman, your cabin rests my eyes, and makes me forget Paris." He was roused from his almost lyric ecstasy by a big double Saint-Jean cracker which suddenly went off from the happy cabin. It was the cow ferryman, who was taking his part in the rejoicings of the day, and letting off fireworks. This cracker made Gringoire's skin bristle up all over. "'A cursed festival!' he exclaimed. "'Wilt thou pursue me everywhere? Oh, good God! Even to the ferryman's!' Then he looked at the Seine at his feet, and a horrible temptation took possession of him. Oh, said he, I would gladly drown myself, were the water not so cold. Then a desperate resolution occurred to him. It was, since he could not escape from the Pope of the Fools, from Jehan Forbert's bannerets, from May trusses, from squibs and crackers, to go to the Place de Greve. At least, he said to himself, I shall there have a firebrand of joy wherewith to warm myself and I can sup on some crumbs of the three great armorial bearings of royal sugar which have been erected on the public refreshment stall of the city. End of chapter 1「Book Second, Chapter 2 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Two, The Place de Greve. There remains today but a very imperceptible vestige of the Place de Greve, such as it existed then. It consists in the charming little turret which occupies the angle north of the Place, and which already enshrouded in the ignoble plaster which fills with paste the delicate lines of its sculpture, would soon have disappeared, perhaps submerged by that flood of new houses which so rapidly devours all the ancient façades of Paris. The persons, who, like ourselves, never crossed the Place de Greve without casting a glance of pity and sympathy on that poor turret, strangled between two hovels of the time of Louis the Fifteenth, 
can easily reconstruct in their minds the aggregate of edifices to which it belonged, and find again entire in it the ancient Gothic place of the fifteenth century. It was then, as it is today, an irregular trapezoid, bordered on one side by the quay and on the other three by a series of lofty, narrow, and gloomy houses. By day one could admire the variety of its edifices, all sculptured in stone or wood, and already presenting complete specimens of the different domestic architectures of the Middle Ages, running back from the fifteenth to the eleventh century, from the casement which had begun to dethrone the arch, to the Roman semicircle which had been supplanted by the ogive, and which still occupies below it the first story of that ancient house de la Tour Roland, at the corner of the Place upon the Seine, on the side of the street with the tannery. At night one could distinguish nothing of all that mass of buildings, except the black indentation of the roofs, unrolling their chain of acute angles round the Place. For one of the radical differences between the cities of that time and the cities of the present day lay in the façades which looked upon the places and streets, and which were then gables. For the last two centuries the houses have been turned round. In the centre of the eastern side of the Place rose a heavy and hybrid construction, formed of three buildings placed in juxtaposition. It was called by three names which explain its history, its destination, and its architecture. The House of the Dauphin, because Charles V, when Dauphin, had inhabited it. The Merchandise, because it had served as town hall. And the Pilloried House, Domus ad Pilleria, because of a series of large pillars which sustained the three stories. The city found there all that is required for a city like Paris. A chapel in which to pray to God, a pladoyer or pleading-room in which to hold hearings, and to repel at need the king's people, and under the roof an arsenac, full of artillery. For the bourgeois of Paris were aware that it is not sufficient to pray in every conjuncture, and to plead for the franchises of the city and they had always in reserve, in the garret of the town hall, a few good, rusty arquebuses. The greve had then that sinister aspect which it preserves to-day, from the execrable ideas which it awakens, and from the sombre town hall of Dominique Bocador, which has replaced the pillared house. It must be admitted that a permanent gibbet and a pillory, a justice and a ladder, as they were called in that day, erected side by side in the centre of the pavement, contributed not a little to cause eyes to be turned away from that fatal place, where so many beings full of life and health have agonized. Here, fifty years later, that fever of saint Vallier was destined to have its birth, that terror of the scaffold, the most monstrous of all maladies, because it comes not from God, but from man. It is a consoling idea, let us remark in passing, to think that the death penalty, which three hundred years ago still encumbered with its iron wheels, its stone gibbets, and all its paraphernalia of torture, permanent and riveted to the pavement, the greve, the hall, the place dauphine, the cross du trahoir, the marche au parceau, that hideous Montfaucon, the barrier des sergents, 
the Place aux Chattes, the Port Saint-Denis, Champeau, the Port Baudet, the Port Saint-Jacques, without reckoning the innumerable ladders of the provosts, the bishop of the chapters, of the abbots, of the priors, who had the decree of life and death, without reckoning the judicial drownings in the river Seine. It is consoling to-day, after having lost successively all the pieces of its armour, its luxury of torment, its penalty of imagination and fancy, its torture, for which it reconstructed every five years a leather bed at the Grand Châtelet, that ancient suzerain of feudal society almost expunged from our laws and our cities, hunted from code to code, chased from place to place, has no longer, in our immense Paris, any more than a dishonoured corner of the Greve, than a miserable guillotine, furtive, uneasy, shameful, which seems always afraid of being caught in the act, so quickly does it disappear after having dealt its blow. End of chapter 2「Book Second, Chapter Three of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Second, Chapter Three Kisses for Blows. When Pierre Gringois arrived at the Place de Greve, he was paralyzed. He had directed his course across the Pont aux Meuniers in order to avoid the rabble on the Pont au Change and the pennons of Jehan Forbeau. But the wheels of all the bishop's mills had splashed him as he passed, and his doublet was drenched. It seemed to him, besides, that the failure of his peace had rendered him still more sensible to cold than usual. Hence he made haste to draw near the bonfire, which was burning magnificently in the middle of the place. But a considerable crowd formed a circle around it. "'Accursed Parisians,' he said to himself, for Gringoire, like a true dramatic poet, was subject to monologues. "'There they are, obstructing my fire. Nevertheless, I am greatly in need of a chimney-corner. My shoes drink in the water, and all those cursed mills wept upon me. That devil of a bishop of Paris with his mills! I'd just like to know what use a bishop can make of a mill. Does he expect to become a miller instead of a bishop? If only my malediction is needed for that, I bestow it upon him, and his cathedral, and his mills. Just see if those boobies will put themselves out. Move aside! I'd like to know what they're doing there. They are warming themselves. Much pleasure may it give them. They are watching a hundred faggots burn. A fine spectacle." On looking more closely, he perceived that the circle was much larger than was required simply for the purpose of getting warm at the king's fire, and that this concourse of people had not been attracted solely by the beauty of the hundred faggots which were burning. In a vast space left free between the crowd and the fire, a young girl was dancing. Whether this young girl was a human being, a fairy, or an angel, is what Gringoire, skeptical philosopher and ironical poet that he was, could not decide at the first moment, so fascinated was he by this dazzling vision. 
She was not tall, though she seemed so, so boldly did her slender form dart about. She was swarthy of complexion, but one divined that by day her skin must possess that beautiful golden tone of the Andalusians and the Roman women. Her little foot, too, was Andalusian, for it was both pinched and at ease in its graceful shoe. She danced, she turned, she whirled rapidly about on an old Persian rug, spread negligently under her feet, and each time that her radiant face passed before you, as she whirled, her great black eyes darted a flash of lightning at you. All around her all glances were riveted, all mouths open, and in fact, when she danced thus, to the humming of the basque tambourine which her two pure rounded arms raised above her head, slender, frail, and vivacious as a wasp, with her corsage of gold without a fold, her variegated gown puffed out, her bare shoulders, her delicate limbs, which her petticoat revealed at times, her black hair, her eyes of flame, she was a supernatural creature. "'In truth,' said Gringoire to himself, she is a salamander, she is a nymph, she is a goddess, she is a bacante of the Manilian mount." At that moment one of the salamander's braids of hair became unfastened, and a piece of yellow copper which was attached to it rolled to the ground. "'Eh, no,' said he, "'she is a gypsy!' All illusions had disappeared. She began her dance once more. She took from the ground two swords, whose points she rested against her brow, and which she made to turn in one direction, while she turned in the other. It was a purely gypsy effect. But, disenchanted though Gringoire was, the whole effect of this picture was not without its charm and its magic. The bonfire illuminated with a red, flaring light which trembled, all alive, over the circle of faces in the crowd on the brow of the young girl, and at the background of the place cast a pallid reflection, on one side of the ancient black and wrinkled façade of the House of Pillars, on the other upon the old stone gibbet. Among the thousands of visages which that light tinged with scarlet, there was one which seemed, even more than all the others, absorbed in contemplation of the dancer. It was the face of a man, austere, calm, and somber. This man, whose costume was concealed by the crowd which surrounded him, did not appear to be more than five-and-thirty years of age. Nevertheless, he was bald. He had merely a few tufts of thin gray hair on his temples. His broad, high forehead had begun to be furrowed with wrinkles, but his deep-set eyes sparkled with extraordinary youthfulness, an ardent life, a profound passion he kept them fixed incessantly on the gypsy. And while the giddy young girl of sixteen danced and whirled, for the pleasure of all, his reverie seemed to become more and more somber. From time to time a smile and a sigh met upon his lips, but the smile was more melancholy than the sigh. The young girl stopped at length, breathless, and the people applauded her lovingly. Jolly said the gypsy. Then Gringoire saw come up to her a pretty little white goat, alert, wide-eyed, glossy with gilded horns, gilded hoofs, and gilded collar, 
which he had not hitherto perceived, and which had remained lying curled up on one corner of the carpet watching his mistress dance. "'Jolly!' said the dancer. "'It is your turn!' And, seating herself, she gracefully presented her tambourine to the goat. "'Jolly!' she continued. "'What month is this?' The goat lifted its forefoot and struck one blow upon the tambourine. It was the first month in the year, in fact. "'Jolly!' pursued the young girl, turning her tambourine round. "'What day of the month is this?' Jolly raised his little gilt hoof and struck six blows on the tambourine. "'Jolly!' pursued the Egyptian, with still another movement of the tambourine. "'What hour of the day is it?' Jolly struck seven blows. At that moment the clock of the pillar-house rang out seven. The people were amazed. "'There's sorcery at the bottom of it,' said a sinister voice in the crowd. It was that of the bald man, who never removed his eyes from the gypsy. She shuddered and turned round, but applause broke forth and drowned the morose exclamation. It even effaced it so completely from her mind that she continued to question her goat. "'Jolly, what does Master Guichard Granrami, captain of the pistoliers of the town, do at the procession of Candlemas?' Jolly reared himself on his hind legs and began to bleat, marching along with so much dainty gravity that the entire circle of spectators burst into a laugh at this parody of the interested devoutness of the captain of pistoliers. "'Jolly,' resumed the young girl, emboldened by her growing success, "'how preaches Master Jacques Charmelieu, procurator to the king in the ecclesiastical court?' The goat seated himself on his hindquarters and began to bleat, waving his forefeet in so strange a manner that, with the exception of the bad French and worse Latin, Jacques Charmelieu was there complete, gesture, accent, and attitude. And the crowd applauded louder than ever. "'Sacrilege! Profanation!' resumed the voice of the bald man. The gypsy turned round once more. "'Ah!' said she. "'Tis that villainous man!' Then, thrusting her under lip out beyond the upper, she made a little pout, which appeared to be familiar to her, executed a pirouette on her heel, and set about collecting in her tambourine the gifts of the multitude. Big blanks, little blanks, targes, and eagle yards showered into it. All at once she passed in front of Gringoire. Gringoire put his hand so recklessly into his pocket that she halted. "'The devil!' said the poet, finding at the bottom of his pocket the reality, that is to say, a void. In the meantime the pretty girl stood there, gazing at him with her big eyes, and holding out her tambourine to him, and waiting. Gringoire broke into a violent perspiration. If he had all Peru in his pocket, he would certainly have given it to the dancer. But Gringoire had not Peru, and, moreover, America had not yet been discovered. Happily, an unexpected incident came to his rescue. "'Will you take yourself off, you Egyptian grasshopper?' 
cried a sharp voice, which proceeded from the darkest corner of the place. The young girl turned round in affright. It was no longer the voice of the bald man, it was the voice of a woman, bigoted and malicious. However, this cry, which alarmed the gypsy, delighted a troop of children who were prowling about there. "'It is the recluse of the Tour Roland!' they exclaimed with wild laughter. "'It is the sacked nun who is scolding. Hasn't she supped? Let's carry her the remains of the city refreshments!' All rushed towards the pillar-house. In the meantime, Gringois had taken advantage of the dancer's embarrassment to disappear. The children's shouts had reminded him that he also had not supped, so he ran to the public buffet. But the little rascals had better legs than he. When he arrived, they had stripped the table. There remained not so much as a miserable chemichon, at five sous the pound. Nothing remained upon the wall but the slender fleur-de-lis mingled with rose-bushes, painted in 1434 by Matteau Bittern. It was a meagre supper. It is an unpleasant thing to go to bed without supper. It is a still less pleasant thing not to sup and not to know where one is to sleep. That was Gringoire's condition. No supper, no shelter. He saw himself pressed on all sides by necessity, and he found necessity very crabbed. He had long ago discovered the truth that Jupiter created men during a fit of misanthropy, and that during a wise man's whole life his destiny holds his philosophy in a state of siege. As for himself, he had never seen the blockade so complete. He heard his stomach sounding a parley and considered it very much out of place that evil destiny should capture his philosophy by famine. This melancholy reverie was absorbing him more and more, when a song, quaint but full of sweetness, suddenly tore him from it. It was the young gypsy who was singing. Her voice was like her dancing, like her beauty. It was indefinable and charming something pure and sonorous, aerial, winged, so to speak. There were continual outbursts, melodies, unexpected cadences, then simple phrases strewn with aerial and hissing notes, then floods of scales which would have put a nightingale to rout, but in which harmony was always present, then soft modulations of octaves which rose and fell like the bosom of the young singer. Her beautiful face followed, with singular mobility, all the caprices of her song from the wildest inspiration to the chastest dignity. One would have pronounced her now a mad creature, now a queen. The words which she sang were in a tongue unknown to Gringoire, and which seemed to him to be unknown to herself, so little relation did the expression which she imparted to her song bear to the sense of the words. Thus these four lines in her mouth were madly gay. Un coffre de gran riqueza, jalaron dentro un pilar, dentro del nuevas banderas, con figuras de espantar. A coffer of great richness in a pillar's heart they found, 
within it lay new banners, with figures to astound. And in an instant afterwards, at the accents which she imparted to this stanza, Alarabes de Cavallo, sin poders menear, con espadas y los cuelos, balestas don buen echar. Gringoire felt the tears start to his eyes. Nevertheless, her song breathed joy most of all, and she seemed to sing like a bird, from serenity and heedlessness. The gypsy's song had disturbed Gringoire's reverie as the swan disturbs the water. He listened in a sort of rapture, and forgetfulness of everything. It was the first moment in the course of many hours when he did not feel that he suffered. The moment was brief. The same woman's voice, which had interrupted the gypsy's dance, interrupted her song. "'Will you hold your tongue, you cricket of hell?' it cried, still from some obscure corner of the place. The poor cricket stopped short. Gringoire covered up his ears. "'Oh!' he exclaimed, "'a cursed saw with missing teeth, which comes to break the lyre!' Meanwhile the other spectators murmured like himself. "'To the devil with the sacked nun!' said some of them. And the old invisible killjoy might have had occasion to repent of her aggressions against the gypsy, had their attention not been diverted at this moment by the procession of the Pope of the Fools which, after having traversed many streets and squares, debouched on the Place de Greve, with all its torches and all its uproar. This procession, which our readers have seen set out from the Palais de Justice, had organized on the way, and had been recruited by all the knaves, idle thieves, and unemployed vagabonds in Paris, so that it presented a very respectable aspect when it arrived at the Greve first came Egypt. The Duke of Egypt headed it on horseback, with his counts on foot holding his bridle and stirrups for him. Behind them the male and female Egyptians, pell-mell with their little children crying on their shoulders. All, Duke, counts, and populace, in rags and tatters. Then came the Kingdom of Argot, that is to say, all the thieves of France, arranged according to the order of their dignity, the minor people walking first. Thus defiled by fours, with the diverse insignia of their grades, in that strange faculty, most of them lame, some cripples, others one-armed, shop-clerks, pilgrim, ubans, boot-blacks, thimble-riggers, street-arabs, beggars, the blear-eyed beggars, thieves, the weakly, vagabonds, merchants, sham soldiers, goldsmiths, past masters of pickpockets, isolated thieves. A catalogue that would weary Homer. In the center of the conclave of the past masters of pickpockets, one had some difficulty in distinguishing the king of Argot, the grand coez, so-called, crouching in a little cart drawn by two big dogs. After the kingdom of the Argoteers came the Empire of Galilee. Guillaume Rousseau, emperor of the Empire of Galilee, marched majestically in his robe of purple, spotted with wine, preceded by buffoons wrestling and executing military dances. 
surrounded by his mace-bearers, his pickpockets, and clerks of the Chamber of Accounts. Last of all came the corporation of law-clerks, with its maypoles crowned with flowers, its black robes, its music worthy of the orgy, and its large candles of yellow wax. In the center of this crowd the grand officers of the Brotherhood of Fools bore on their shoulders a litter more loaded down with candles than the reliquary of saint jean in the time of Pest, and on this litter shone resplendent, with crozier, cope and mitre, the new Pope of the Fools, the bell-ringer of Notre-Dame, Quasimodo the Hunchback. Each section of this grotesque procession had its own music. The Egyptians made their drums and African tambourines resound. The slang-men, not a very musical race, still clung to the goat's horn-trumpet and the Gothic rubebi of the twelfth century. The empire of Galilee was not much more advanced. Among its music one could hardly distinguish some miserable rebeck from the infancy of the art, still imprisoned in the re l'ami. But it was around the Pope of the Fools that all the musical riches of the epoch were displayed in a magnificent discord. It was nothing but soprano rebecks, counter-tenor rebecks, and tenor rebecks, not to reckon the flutes and brass instruments. Alas, our readers will remember that this was Gringoire's orchestra. It is difficult to convey an idea of the degree of proud and blissful expansion to which the sad and hideous visage of Quasimodo had attained during the transit from the Palace de Justice to the Place de Greve. It was the first enjoyment of self-love that he had ever experienced. Down to that day he had known only humiliation, disdain for his condition, disgust for his person. Hence, deaf though he was, he enjoyed, like a veritable pope, the acclamations of that throng, which he hated because he felt that he was hated by it. What mattered it that his people consisted of a pack of fools, cripples, thieves, and beggars? It was still a people, and he was its sovereign. And he accepted seriously all this ironical applause, all this derisive respect, with which the crowd mingled, it must be admitted, a good deal of very real fear. For the hunchback was robust, for the bandy-legged fellow was agile, for the deaf man was malicious, three qualities which temper ridicule. We are far from believing, however, that the new Pope of the Fools understood both the sentiments which he felt and the sentiments which he inspired. The spirit which was lodged in this failure of a body had, necessarily, something incomplete and deaf about it. Thus what he felt at the moment was to him absolutely vague, indistinct, and confused. Only joy made itself felt, only pride dominated. Around that sombre and unhappy face there hung a radiance. It was, then, not without surprise and alarm, that at the very moment when Quasimodo was passing the pillar-house, in that semi-intoxicated state, a man was seen to dart from the crowd, and to tear from his hands, with a gesture of anger, his crozier of gilded wood, 
the emblem of his mock popeship. This man, this rash individual, was the man with the bald brow, who, a moment earlier, standing with the gypsy's group, had chilled the poor girl with his words of menace and hatred. He was dressed in an ecclesiastical costume. At the moment when he stood forth from the crowd, Gringoire, who had not noticed him up to that time, recognized him. Hold! he said, with an exclamation of astonishment. Hey! Tis my master in Hermé, Dom Claude Frollo, the archdeacon. What the devil does he want with that old one-eyed fellow? He'll get himself devoured. A cry of terror arose, in fact. The formidable Quasimodo had hurled himself from the litter, and the women turned aside their eyes in order not to see him tear the archdeacon asunder. He made one bound as far as the priest, looked at him, and fell upon his knees. The priest tore off his tiara, broke his crozier, and rent his tinsel cope. Quasimodo remained on his knees, with head bent and hands clasped. Then there was established between them a strange dialogue of signs and gestures, for neither of them spoke. The priest, erect on his feet, irritated, threatening, imperious. Quasimodo, prostrate, humble, suppliant. And, nevertheless, it was certain that Quasimodo could have crushed the priest with his thumb. At length, the archdeacon, giving Quasimodo's powerful shoulder a rough shake, made him a sign to rise and follow him. Quasimodo rose. Then the Brotherhood of Fools, their first stupor having passed off, wished to defend their pope, so abruptly dethroned. The Egyptians, the men of slang, and all the fraternity of law-clerks gathered howling round the priest. Quasimodo placed himself in front of the priest, set in play the muscles of his athletic fists, and glared upon the assailants with a snarl of an angry tiger. The priest resumed his somber gravity, made a sign to Quasimodo, and retired in silence. Quasimodo walked in front of him, scattering the crowd as he passed. When they had traversed the populace and the place, the cloud of curious and idle were minded to follow them. Quasimodo then constituted himself the rear-guard, and followed the archdeacon, walking backwards, squat, surly, monstrous, bristling, gathering up his limbs, licking his boar's tusks, growling like a wild beast, and imparting to the crowd immense vibrations with a look or a gesture. Both were allowed to plunge into a dark and narrow street where no one dared to venture after them. So thoroughly did the mere chimera of Quasimodo gnashing his teeth bar the entrance. "'Here's a marvellous thing,' said Gringoire. "'But where the deuce shall I find some supper?' End of chapter 3 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.